Hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. Hope you're doing well. Hey, don't you feel like going past freedomainradio.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to help us out in this most excellent and important work we are doing for the world. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate. And please check out my conversation about Hamlet with Dr. Duke Pester. Great show tonight. We had two listeners. We've had a number of listeners call in who were at the Milo Riots in California at the U Berkeley. Two men who were there called in and give you the on-the-ground view of what went down. Shocking, appalling, surprising, enraging, frustrating, and uh, motivating, I think, in a very important way. The second caller has come from a broken home but feels he has done pretty well with what he was given and where he came from. How can we best assist those who didn't make it out, who didn't make it out of the war of broken homes? And uh, it's a great, great question. Third caller, um, joyfully challenging is the phrase that I would use. He wanted to know, Steph, how could you have any conciliatory stance towards religion in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> so I had a conversation with him about that. Um, I guess it didn't go quite as long as he wanted, but it was certainly instructive. Now, the fourth caller told a woman he was Christian when he's not really, and he now wants to know how he could um, make that better. Now, right before, that was his question, right before he called, he said he had told her. So we talked about what does it mean to be good if you follow the values but don't have the faith? How does that fit into your relationship? So some great questions, great callers. Really appreciate your support. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Use the affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Oh, that's right. I might have remembered uh, or not remembered to remind you. Yes, I did. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. I just wanted to say I'm listening. Thank you, everyone, so much for the messages that came pouring in yesterday after I put out my cry de cour of uh, wondering whether there were more arguments to be made given the feral nature and escalation of the war against free speech uh, that manifested in blocking Milo Yiannopoulos' speech at the uh, Berkeley campus in California. Uh, I really, really appreciate and... Um, cherish and treasure and love what uh, people had to say, uh, positive and uh, negative. And um, I'm going to just read a couple of comments uh, that uh, I thought were interesting. Um, someone said, I regard you as a brilliant and rational man, Stefan. I agree with most of what you say, but not everything. However, besides an occasional difference of opinion, I see your Achilles heel as being your assumption that everyone in the world possesses the rationality, intellect, and conscience to enter into productive, fact-based solutions. Surely you have not led such a sheltered life, your IQ videos alone, but paid to this, we will always need thinkers like yourself. Um, and someone else said, um, Stefan, if the sword must be drawn, then the job of the philosopher is to remind us why we drew it in the first place. When the need has passed, the sword must be sheathed again, lest a reign of terror ruins what we had fought for. And um, the, the number of people who said that they'd never commented before, who were giving me very passionate arguments, were very much appreciated. One person said, uh, Stefan, I always watch YouTube on my TV, not on my computer, meaning that my system won't let me make comments. I just finished your video, and I was compelled by your compelling paint words and expressions to Go get my PC and respond. With great emotion and pain in your voice, you said, maybe your job is done and that maybe conversations are over. While I'm rather liberal, not libertarian, I always enjoy your show, and I'm a believer that free speech is crucial. 
Malcolm X once stated that it would either be the ballot or the bullet. To me, words, speeches, books, talks, videos are how we as a society vote on who we are and where we are going. Please keep up the good work. Even if the battle is to be lost, and I do not believe even then it will long stay lost, why not go down fighting for righteousness? Be encouraged, my friend. Please keep it up, someone else said. A student said to his master, you teach me fighting, but you talk about peace. How do you reconcile the two? The master replied, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than to be a gardener in a war. Um, a, a person wrote, and you know, it's funny because uh, we don't share this a lot with, with everyone out there, but uh, we get a lot of messages uh, from, from all over the world here at Free Domain Radio from amazing, brave, powerful, insightful, brilliant people in uh, all cultures and uh, countries. And uh, it does give me um, a sense of a wider network around the world of people who are willing to put aside prejudice, open themselves to reason and evidence and, and truly think, and the courage that it takes for people to have this kind of open mind and curiosity and rationality in certain places in the world is extraordinary, and um, I massively respect and appreciate that. So somebody wrote, For some living in Pakistan, seeing the left being dominated by cultural Marxists, socialists and progressive authoritarians on the one side, and religious fundamentalist authoritarians on the other side, on top of that, no understanding of capitalism or the concept of the coercive nature of the government. With all that in mind, you shouldn't, you haven't seen anything yet. I think Pakistan is the way it is because I have seen my parents' generation fight for nothing. Objectively true. As long as the West doesn't have authoritarians versus authoritarians, and there are people conversing on both sides, the West's chances of maintaining liberty through conversation remains. He said, not an argument, just an anecdote. Uh, people, a number of people commented on the gun-free zone aspect of the campus. Um, the pithy one was, get rid of your guns, they said. The police will protect you, they said. Uh, someone said, hi, Steph, just wanted to say first, do not despair. Things are rough, yes, but you are living proof of hope. Just look at your channel and all the change you have brought to people to fight this evil we are facing. Don't you ever give an inch, because if you do, then why would we not do the same? Dear Stefan, you must never give up. One of the few times I appreciate caps. <laughs> you must never give up speaking the truth from your sacred point of view. Yours is a voice of reason. You are a light shining in the darkness. Your analysis of events and the historical perspectives that you bring to them pierce the fog of ignorance, confusion, anger, hate, and fear. The way you articulate your ideas is enlightening and entertaining. Without your food for thought, I would starve. And, um... We also get views from inside the university. Somebody wrote, talking to one of my profs today, and he said he supported the rioters. Universities are stuffed with despicable anti-intellectuals like him that don't deserve to work in academic institutions. And um, somebody else wrote, said, you have not failed because we are still here. Ooh, Matrix. We are still listening. We are still asking and questioning and arguing. Thank you for all you have done. I know it can be discouraging. Yesterday I shared your video on did. Trump just saved Western civilization, and it got more likes and shares than anything else I have ever shared before. And the last comment I wanted to mention, I couldn't find it again. YouTube commenting search, terrible. Anyway, somebody pointed out something that I had pointed out in The Truth About Slavery, that Wilberforce had argued for 42 years for the end of slavery. Why am I being such a pussy and giving up after 10? 
That is a very, very good point. That is an argument. So I just wanted to tell everyone, um, thank you, thank you for your support, for your kind words. It was like a trapdoor opening in a dark cellar, uh, and uh, many, many wonderful hands helping me back to the light. I appreciate it. I am forever in your debt, and thank you, everyone, so much for your support. I am back in the saddle and uh, soldiering on. That having been said, let us move on to the first callers for tonight's show. All right. Well, up first tonight, we have Warren and Nima, who both were at the UC Berkeley riots. I'm not going to call it a protest because that's not what it was. They're both in attendance and they witnessed what went down. So we get the on the ground perspective. Welcome to the show, Warren and Nima. Hi there. Hey, how you guys doing? Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you guys uh, so much for... Um, uh, for giving us the on-the-ground reports. So don't be shy about being detailed. And, and why don't you start from the beginning? I don't know if we, you know, my daughter says, put your feet in the circle, and she does some sort of eeny-meeny thing. But um, uh, let's just go with um, Nima first. Um, what happened when you got there? And what was it like even before you went? Did you anticipate anything like this occurring? Yeah, actually, Warren wanted to say thank you first. Oh, um, Stefan, I'm just a huge fan, a donor, and I uh, love what you and Mike and the team do. So I just want to get that out of the way before we go on with anything else. It's nice that you think it's me, Mike, and the team. The team is mostly hand puppets that we use for amusing each other when we're too depressed with the world. So I uh, appreciate that very much. And uh, we'll get to you in a second, Warren, if you just want to go ahead, Nima, with yeah. what your mindset was before going and what happened when you got there. Um, so before I went there, I would say I was expecting the worst. And by worst, I mean what I'd seen in uh, at Trump rallies in Costa Mesa and San Jose. So quite frankly, you know, I was sort of, I wasn't really Wait, what ultimately did you, what not did you surprised. See in, sorry to interrupt you just as you're starting. What did you see in those areas? Well, I saw um, people getting beaten bloody with sticks and rocks and eggs thrown at women. People chased through the streets. Um, uh, people doing donuts with their car through crowds, totally dangerous things. Um, I don't know if you remember seeing those clips from back then. Um, so I sort of was expecting that and I would say it wasn't the worst I expected, but it got, you know, it got really bad. Um, if you want, I can just go through the notes I took of what I saw. Well, just give me your, um, what was it like? What, what time did you arrive there and what happened before the um, rioting began? So I only arrived um, around 6.30, I would say, which is around when the fire started. Um, and that's also the time when it got really tense and really uh, violent. Sorry, your question was when I arrived there. <laughs> yeah, just just keep keep going on with the story. Okay, okay, I'm, okay. I'm going to interrupt yeah. as little as possible, so go ahead. Okay, okay. So at one point, um, I suspect the explosion that sparked the fire occurred. Masses of people ran very fast toward me so that people were running for cover to the sides, but then people slowed down, I guess. Uh, the fire was burning as I walked closer to the ballroom. I tried to find a way to get into the ticket area. I saw rocks being thrown at smashed windows, so I backed off that area uh, close to the entrance again. I was also trying to find a Facebook friend but couldn't, and his phone was dying. At one point, I heard another explosion, or at least it sounded like an explosion. Honestly, I didn't know what it was. I saw people around me, mostly students and bystanders, laughing, giggling, cheering, filming. At one point, people started really celebrating when it was announced that the event had been shut down. 
I saw very little outrage um, overall. Uh, the whole time I saw cops standing by and watching, not following the rioters anywhere. I walked back towards Telegraph Avenue and Bancroft, successfully connected with Warren, who's also on this call, uh, through the Facebook group. Um, Antifa rioters, drummers, dancers, uh, and so on began marching through the barricades towards Telegraph Avenue. I saw one group of rioters communicating about how they just found like 50 Nazis over there. <laughs> I walked on. Fights emerged, uh, Antifa seriously overpowering and chasing out Milo fans and people with MAGA hats. I saw one guy beaten and surrounded by numerous Antifas, apparently beaten so bad he wasn't moving anymore, as I saw later on in the footage. Two Trump supporters beaten with flag sticks and chased away by Antifa by shrieking females and males, uh, shouting things like, beat him up, get the fuck out of here, Nazi scum. I saw one woman with a make Bitcoin great again hat after she'd been pepper sprayed while interviewed by, ma by a masked individual who immediately ran off. Uh, I got tear gassed somehow or pepper sprayed because my eyes started burning at that point um, pretty bad. Um, it, my, it seemed like my throat was irritated from what I was inhaling. I walked away from the situation together with Warren. Um, and then we met a couple of people here and there who uh, we were able to talk to, Milo uh, 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 fans. Um, and ultimately, we actually just went to a, a, um, a place uh, a little more remote and just sat down and had a drink together. <laughs> um, that's mostly... What did you see in terms of um, enforcement? Uh, was that because you know we hear these stories of these non-lethal bullets and yeah. uh, but it's, I, I've also read that there weren't any arrests made which I find rather incomprehensible but um, did you see police or security was anything being done to protect people I saw police standing by and doing nothing I mean I, I, actually later on Warren showed me pictures that before the generator started burning which is a generator that they apparently threw a Molotov cocktail at there was actually cops standing right there but later on, when I got to that area, when the fire had already erupted and was huge, I didn't see any cops in that area. I saw cops in the building nearby, inside, looking out of the windows. I think some of them even filmed and took pictures. Um, especially so the cops when, were standing got, in the relative security of inside a building while most of them. this mayhem was occurring outside? Yes. And there was also only like 30 cops, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe, you know, 30 to 30, I would say. Most, I mean, not more than that. And I just I just wanted to mention before I forget that for people who uh, received injuries, uh, you can go on Twitter and you can look up Mike Cernovich or Michael Cernovich. Mike Cernovich, I think he goes by C-E-R-N-O-V-I-C-H. Uh, he is a lawyer and he's interested in talking to you just in case you feel like joining a class action lawsuit against uh, people who I believe were supposed to be responsible for protecting everyone. Uh, there was no question that there was going to be um, aggression and riots uh, out of this. I mean, this has happened at a number of Milo gigs and um, UC Berkeley is, uh, you yeah. <laughs> kind of on the left in, in many ways. And the question is, were there stand-down orders? The FBI is now investigating the um, the chancellor uh, and uh, what might have happened in terms of was there enough security and were stand-down orders given to the police? And this is a big deal um, because just last year, UC Berkeley got $370 million in funding from the federal government. 
And uh, this is from their website. They boast that, quote, each year the UC Berkeley campus receives well over half a billion dollars in research and other support from external sources. The federal government provides 55 percent of these funds in California. State agencies and other government sources, industry and the nonprofit sector supplied the rest. And uh, Trump uh, tweeted this morning, if UC Berkeley does not allow free speech and practices violence on innocent people with a different point of view, no federal funds, question mark. And um I guess that's why he's in power and I'm not. I would have already made that decision. But um, I just wanted to mention that for people who are um, interested, this could be a very interesting development. Um, and if the police did receive stand down orders, I don't know. Uh, you know, do, do you blame the people on the receiving end of the orders? Do you blame the people on the you know, the Nuremberg principle is you blame the people giving the orders, not the people carrying them out. But um, that will all come out should a lawsuit move forward or should the FBI investigation into the incitement of riots and so on um, prove fruitful. And uh, I think we're going to see some very interesting stuff should it get to discovery coming out from that particular situation. So I'm so sorry, guys, to to interrupt. I just wanted to mention that for people who wanted to follow this up, I would suggest you get in touch with Mike Cernovich on Twitter and uh, give him uh, your thoughts. So um, sorry, Nima, was there something else you wanted to add uh, or, or should we switch to Warren? I was actually really upset about that question mark at the end of Trump's tweet. Yeah. Only thing I wanted to add. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't at the, like, that's the Captain Hook weasel question. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, I would have preferred four exclamation marks. Exactly. Uh, but that's, uh, <laughs> I was just, you know, forcing, forcing the American taxpayer to pay for a bunch of lunatics who are out there seeming wanting to undermine the basis of American civilization, that is pretty bad. Um, I mean, I would argue that the lack of free speech comes in in this half a billion dollars, forcing people to fund ideas they find antithetical to everything they hold dear, forcing people to hand over money to fund this identity politics feminist crap that goes on there, all this leftist Marxist indoctrination and hysteria, forcing people to fund that, that's the most important violation of free speech, I think, that came out last night. The violence is hidden in compliance, but it is very powerful, and you should not force people to fund those they find anathema, or even though you can't force people to fund anyone when it comes to the realm of ideas. The realm of ideas must be kept as voluntarist as possible, and it is, of course, my hope that uh, these higher education institutions stop getting a single goddamn dime of government money and start having to provide some fucking value to their culture yeah and i also want to point out that there's apparently uh, i read on the news that protesters started a bonfire um in front of the university uh, i just want to make sure that people don't think that it's a bonfire it was a generator that was uh, they threw a Molotov cocktail at and exploded. So it's a little more serious than a bonfire, I would say. Right. Yeah, and they um, uh, they dragged down a light pole and scrolled Milo on it, um, which I think is inappropriate. Uh, Milo likes dark pole, but um, that uh, <laughs> is, um, uh, yeah, there was some very dangerous stuff going on. I mean, you start, start messing around with fire and generators. Um, it seems to me you could either get some significant explosion or some cuts in power which could be quite uh, catastrophic yeah. for certain people. And uh, there's one guy, I I'm not sure I've been trying to find news about it, but I wonder if he's alive, honestly, because he wasn't moving anymore on the street. And I've only seen people speculate over whether he's alive or dead. We actually, yeah, we when I did the video, when I cut the video late, uh, last night, the source was that 
there was speculation that he had died. I did include that in the video. I cut it out mm -hmm. because we couldn't get confirmation mm -hmm. and I didn't want to put out anything um, so inflammatory uh, if in yeah. the absence of any proof. I haven't heard anything about it today. I think if he had died, that would be a another Rubicon. that ha and, and sooner or later, it's going to happen. I mean, you, you keep uh, throwing things and smashing people with um, flagpoles. You keep setting fire to things. You keep throwing Molotov cocktails at generators. Uh, you keep uh, blocking traffic. People keep driving through people. You drag people out of cars and beat them. Someone's going to die. I mean, this is not even a matter of of if, but when. And um, you know, maybe maybe the administration is waiting for that to occur before a crackdown happens. I don't know, but it seems to me. I mean, you guys were there. I wasn't, but looking at the footage, it's like okay, just just count down to to uh, to death. Yeah, I'm just waiting for sessions. But that was all I had to say. I guess. Um, <laughs> I guess Warren can. Yeah, Warren, what was your um? What were your thoughts about going? What did you expect? What did you anticipate? What did you prepare for him? Then what happened? Yeah, so I've actually been paying attention to this for quite some time. And I was really excited at the start of the tour because on the original lineup, there was Stanford, there was Berkeley, there was Stanford University, there was, a, sorry, Santa Clara University where, where, where I went to school. And um, a couple months went by and I checked the roster again and Santa Clara got canceled. I emailed folks trying to get answers on why that happened and I never got an answer. Uh, Stanford's usually, event as far as I understand it, uh, it's because there were security costs or requirements that exceeded what was feasible. Correct. And uh, so Milo disclosed that and also said like a private donor stepped in at Berkeley to cover the six and a half grand that was slapped uh, right before um, his event started. So, um, yeah, it's just unfortunate that the, 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 in the Bay Area, this battleground was not allowed to happen and this discourse was not allowed. So I've grown up in the Bay Area my whole life and you're just simply not allowed to be pro-Trump in this last election. Uh, for example, I actually have a Trump sweater and I never wear it outside the house or at the gun range because it's just not safe. And I work in downtown San Francisco. If I took the train into the city, I would just not make it. I, I would just end up as a bloody pulp. And it's, it's just a fact here. You're just not allowed to disclose your identity if you're leaning towards the conservative side. And this is um, what drives me mental is that all you hear about are these fucking microaggressions and you're manspreading in the subway and you're mansplaining things I already know and all these microaggressions and then, oh, we need safe spaces. You know who needs safe spaces? Conservatives on American campuses need some safe spaces because they're not exactly facing microaggressions. Is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. It would be a sucker punch or just a mob would show up wherever you go. You would just not be left alone. So uh, I'm definitely mindful of that as I'm doing my daily business. And I just keep it keep it on the down low. So whether it's at work or socially, I just don't bring it up unless I know who I'm talking to. So, yeah, I've been watching this event for a long time. And I try to get some extra tickets for friends. And tickets disappeared a couple weeks ago. And I saw a lot of trolls just scalping tickets, trying to flip them for an extra $100, $150 per ticket. And they were selling them still right up to the event. And it's just unfortunate to see that. And well, I'm kind of, I'm sure that they will be happy to offer up refunds, given that the end of my credit. That's right. Just like in Saudi Arabia, they they appreciate the refund. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I I took the Bart train in from from downtown San Francisco, and when I once I arrived in downtown Berkeley and walked up the escalator, um, I started seeing signage everywhere of 
uh, KKK with Trump and just um, anti-Trump literature everywhere. And the walk from the, the BART station to the campus is about three blocks. And I just walk down and you see this literature everywhere. And it's just, it's like, it's just like a sign or like, just like a, it's just like a street meter. It's just normal in that environment. So it's just really unfortunate to see that the whole city has accepted this as the state of affairs. So well, it, I it escalated on- the opposition to such an extent that you're, you're literally fighting Satan, Lucifer, Nazis, like the most evil conceivable people are congregating to hear Milo. And uh, once you have escalated your uh, sense of moral outrage and hostility to that degree, then what you've done is is you've let slip the dogs of violence. I mean, you, you are then justified to do anything, to do anything. It's a cartoon story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if they gen- – I, I don't know. I don't know if they genuinely believe it, this stuff. I mean, because I, I don't know the kind of echo chambers that they're inhabiting. So I don't know if they actually believe it or whether they just want to use violence and are using the linguistic tricks – that they need to to unleash the demons of their darker natures. I don't know. But once you make people that evil, just about anything you 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 do is is justified to them, right? And and so and it's funny because of course the left always talks about there are no moral standards, no absolutes, except Nazis. Nazis, oh yeah, absolutely good. Everything's relative except Nazis. Uh, and uh, of course, they have been the vilified group. Um, not that I disagree with that, but you know, they're the one. They're not Nazis are the one group left that you can always shoot in video games, and no one's going to get too upset. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. It's the most boring cliche you can come up with. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, the uh, the media is um, uh, using the power of their blood-soaked megaphone to to whip these idiots up into even more of a uh, a frenzy than they would otherwise have been. And, of course, um, I was reading on Twitter today that um, someone went scouring, like, all the prominent leftists and um, couldn't find one that was denouncing this violence. Deborah Messing, who was on a television show called Will and Grace, which seemed pretty gay positive, now is uh, seems to be celebrating the uh, shutdown of the free speech of a gay man. And uh, Judd Apatow was, oh, yeah, this is just the beginning. And uh, Sarah, Sarah Silverman was basically calling for some sort of revolution. And, I mean, ah, it's uh, it's really, really terrible. And, of course, this is all the stuff that was imagined that the right was going to do. All the violence that was supposed to be happening at the Trump rally, spitting at people and calling them the N-word, and I mean, n- none of which could ever be verified in any way, shape, or form. And uh, this is all the projection. And there's this, I think it was a woman who said, you know, uh, I get the sense that, you know, this is always people don't have an argument. I get the sense, I get the feeling that if Hillary supporters lose, they'll be sad. If Trump supporters lose, they'll be angry. Oh, there's a difference. Well, you didn't quite call that one correctly. And uh, it is um, this polarization um, is like Moses in the Red Sea. You're, you're, and in the Red Sea being the appropriate ocean of blood that could be unleashed. Uh, you are simply setting people with no capacity to co- You don't compromise with Nazis. And how the hell do you compromise with somebody beating you on the head with a flagpole? And so um, this is a language is the negotiation of compromise. And things have become so hysterical with the um, the whips of the media driving the mindless horde forward uh, with pitchforks in a truly French Revolution-style um, demonic mob 
that uh, this is where I felt last night. What, what can be said? There's no, I mean, if people are coming at you with, with bricks and, and throwing uh, fireworks at your buildings and, and hitting you with rocks, what, what can language do uh, at this point? And um, so let's go on with uh, what happened um, in your your evening of, of excitement, Warren. Yeah, so I'm walking up to the campus. I arrive in the general area around 5.15, and this is located in the MLK Student Union Building. And ironically, this is where all the violence will be happening. And the actual event will be held on the ballroom on the second floor. And there's actually two levels. There's an an upper level with the main entrance, and there's a lower level with two smaller entrances. And the barricades were only on the upper level. And uh, there was about one police officer every 20 feet or so and there's uh, more police officers inside in riot gear and there's definitely no more than 30 or 40 officers total and then in terms of other hired security there's about maybe 10 to 15 folks in kind of like rain gear that were hired kind of just whatever contractors probably from that whatever six and a half thousand security fee so those folks are kind of uh, spread out inside the building and it's all glass and you can see through inside so uh, about 5.30, I'm just walking around, taking everything in, and you can kind of see that more of the folks are gathering on the upper, the upper level. And there's a lot of weird signs. Um, Karl Marx is quoted, um, anti-fascist signs. Uh, there, was, there was a couple of German signs that Nima mentioned later, and uh, it just seemed a little bit too organized. Um, you can clearly see where like there's the attitude of the students and they're just kind of like really confused and kind of just watching and they have backpacks on and then there's a formal agitator and they're all masked. They have um, hats on and they have gas masks. Uh, They're all dressed in black. They have like bags of just stuff and they're, they seem really well equipped. Paintballs, Molotov cocktails, um, flagpoles. They have weapons that they're trained with really well trained and prepared for the whole thing. Right, so you can definitely see the difference between a casual, just innocent bystander or a student, and then the formally organized agitator. And then sort of behind this area on the upper level is another um, hall. It's a sprawl hall, and uh, it's it has the architecture of like Greek columns, sort of like at the White House. And those are lit up uh, with like rainbowed colors. And I think people forget that Milo is is gay himself and is obviously supportive. Um, and then the actual club that was hosting this event is the Republican club of UC Berkeley. And I got to give them a lot of credit for having the balls to do this and just put this on. And you could kind of see that they were behind the barricade and there's just young students and kind of like ill fitting, like ill, ill fitting suits. And they're kind of lost and just looking for their friends and fellow attendees. And then the crowd uh, around like 5.30, 5.45, was starting to shout them down because they were just letting their fellow club members in to, to get a seat. And they actually retreated back inside the building and then was just were just waiting inside or going on the second floor, which overlooks the whole area. And then as for myself, I'm trying to figure out, everyone seems like they're here protesting or just watching. And I couldn't really figure out who is an actual fellow attendee and it was really a guessing game. So I was checking the Facebook event page to trying to see folks. And um, I saw there was a lot of like posts happening on the event page or there were just trolls uh, shouting down people. So it was almost like we had moles everywhere. 
and you could you didn't really you weren't really sure if you were actually talking to a Milo supporter or someone who was just looking for an excuse to kick your ass. So I just kept walking around. I didn't really see definitely I didn't see a lot of Trump gear. You know, there's no shirts from InfoWars. And it's just everyone's really discreet or a student or an agitator. And then about 545, the chants kept getting louder and louder. And I started counting how many different chants there were. And there were like six to eight different chants. And these could aren't you, just like- you hear what they were? Yeah, I actually recorded a couple of them. And I can send that to you afterwards. And there's a bunch of them on YouTube. And they're not just simple one or two liners. They're like, they have their own- I guess, verses, verse one, verse two, their whole deal did almost tell a story of violence. It's like this uh, demonic choir that has been practicing for weeks, right? Right. And I'm just standing there and I'm a fairly obvious guy. I'm like six, three Asian American dude. And I'm just watching these like 50 to 80 people just start chanting. And I'm trying to record them and they're all masked. They have bandanas on, they have their megaphones. Where's uh, Where's that? This is library guy. When you, when you need him. But anyway, go on. I love that video. <laughs> yeah, isn't that? That was just one of the most jaw-dropping things I've ever seen on the internet. But go ahead. So um, they're on their megaphones and they're screaming into it, trying to rile up everybody. And I realized, like, oh, my God, they're actually calling for violence. And I'm in just a black jacket, gray sweater, um, really discreet and trying to fit in. And obviously, I'm not chanting. Obviously, I don't have a flag or a resist ribbon or a, or a handout or something in my hands. And I started like, I thought to myself like, oh my God, I probably look like, like just, I might be a target. So I just, I saw people eyeballing me and I just kept walking around and trying to get myself away from these mobs that are just going through their retina of, 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 uh, of just chanting. So um, uh, just kept moving. And eventually I did find some other attendees and you could tell because they look just as lost and confused as me. And we're all trying to find each other. And, um, you know, definitely when you go to, like, say, a more like, like, for example, like a pro-gun community, you go to the gun range or a gun store, you can tell that they look the part. They have camouflage gear on. If you're like, I, I, I go to a shotgun range frequently and everyone has, like, browning gear on or Beretta. And it's the various brand names of the type of tools you like or firearms and such. And trying to meet a fellow attendee was like, am I talking to... Uh, a double agent, or am I talking to a legitimate attendee? So we would just cautiously approach each other respectfully. Hi, are you attending this event? And then, like, this is how I got to see Nima. And he actually, actually showed me, like, his InfoWars shirt, you know, buried beneath his jacket and his other sweater. I'm like, okay, this guy's legit. And I met another guy, and he's like, he actually had his Eventbrite ticket printout. I'm like, okay, this guy's the truth. And then uh, another person had like, uh, he was standing by his car and he actually had a, 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 a Trump hat on actually. So um, like, that's how we identified each other. And then about 5.45, 5.50, then the destruction starts happening and people start pushing against the barricades and people actually rushed the barricades and threw it up, like, like just start throwing it and pushing it back. And then the officers actually did not they just retreated back into the building and then more bottles got tossed rocks and uh eventually someone actually rushed the light generator um that's actually standing there in that corner and i actually used to sell those generators at a previous job those are like baldor light generators they cost like 15 to twenty thousand dollars a piece so this gets toppled it falls down it's not running anymore fuel's leaking someone runs up and spray paints no milo on it um, 
with the cross and, and stuff. And so the, the uh, fuel from the light gen was was leaking on the ground. Yeah, so it's I mean, toppled over. What if somebody it, flicks it, it, a cigarette in that? What if somebody lights it on fire? I mean, aren't you going to end up with this uh, torpedo boat scenario? Right. You would think someone has like a fire extinguisher just to spray it. Because because that unit has to stay upright. Um, it, there's a lot of mechanics behind it from cooling to just it, it has its own in, engine inside to power it. And you just need to keep it upright. I think it has like a 10 to 15 gallon fuel capacity. So it's not an idle tool that can just just be 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 resting on its side so um yeah this was just abandoned uh there's a glass wall there that 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 proceeded to get smashed and nothing was done um the 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 police officers just retreated back into the building and then i i continued to walk around uh to the other entrances and i was i want to see what that looked like and there were much more passive groups occupying that. And maybe those were most likely like students. There was like 30 to 40 people with just like homemade signs, just 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 saying no fascists, blah, 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 KKK, get out of here and stuff like that. So after that, I kind of noticed, I was, trying, I was trying to study the crowd. And um, UC Berkeley is predominantly Asian. Um, it's like 42% Asian. And it, it really struck me that a lot now, of students Now, sorry, just, walk- just to clarify that. What kind of Asian are we talking about here? Uh, it's a mix of Asian American and also international students. No, but because well, some for some people Asian also includes Indian, and I just want to sort of break it down. Oh, you mean, absolutely. So to it, use the older phrase, Asian. you mean like Oriental Asian, like uh, correct, correct, Korean, so, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, you know, okay, from China from Japan, yeah. And so um, I believe like UC San Diego is like fifty percent Asian. And just to see all oh, these Warren, walking. Let, let me let me can I can I can I give a little guess about the next part of your story? Please go on. Please. Can I can I guess that the proportion of people rioting, the proportion of them who were Asian was slightly less than the proportion of Asians at the university. Am I correct? You're just right on that. The, you're hitting. The, the, it's okay. almost like I know something about IQ now, isn't it? Anyway, go on. <laughs> right. So the propensity for crime is just lower with Asian Americans, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that definitely was the case. And um for the for the students that that did stop by just to just to take some video feeds, um, just take some pictures, it was really entertaining to them. They were just giggling. Uh, Nima remarked, he got really upset about this too. Um, just just it was just theatrics to them. And for us, it's life and death. It's it's Western civil, civilization smoldering right there on the side of the building. So I'm going to I assume was, that was, you didn't grow up in a daycare. Um. Yes and no. So half and half, sort of. Yeah, I mean, the the people who are dumped in daycare full time, it's not the only thing, but I think it has a lot to do with this non empathy thing. Uh, they just don't get the bond, so the empathy doesn't develop, and there's the IQ thing too. But anyway, go on. Yeah. So by this time, uh, there's explosions, and I am on the Bancroft side of that plaza, which is near like the main street, and um. I'm also a professional DJ, and then I saw something roll by. There's these two QSC speakers, and they're powered by car batteries. And there's these two kids pushing it inside, heading towards the fire and the rest of the riots, the riot crowd. I'm like, what are they doing? And um, th- when you see reports of like an LGBT dance party that starts, like it was from these two guys with just uh, $4,000 on a small dolly powered by two car batteries. Um, they're just playing Bay, like Bay Area hip hop tracks, like from Mac Dre and blah blah blah. 
And I was like, what the hell are they doing? So yeah, I mean, um, why, later, why not? Uh, why not some nice soothing classical uh, music? Wouldn't that wouldn't that help lower the tensions in the environment as a whole? Yeah. So I'm I'm just blown away watching that just roll by into the crowd, and then by now, um, more cops are trying to shut down the van. It's about uh, it was like about six fifteen. I also have a video of this. I'll send this to you. Uh, six fifteen. Uh, the cops get on their megaphone and tell the crowd to disperse. Uh, this event is being shut down by the police, uh, which Milo which later confirmed post-events. And they said, oh, you have 10 minutes to leave. So once this started happening, um, people started leaving slowly. And we're on Bancroft walking down. And scuffles start breaking out. And the street mob actually forms. And you see people just fighting one-on-one. And there was a pro-Trump guy that actually broke up that fight. But then the mob saw him break it up, and they targeted him and his friends. And then eventually that got broken up again. Uh, but then these guys wouldn't leave because they had someone in the crowd still getting his, get, getting destroyed by 20 other people. And um, I was trying to get the guy to leave, and he's like, yeah, you know, my friend, his name is so-and-so. He's still in there. He could be dead. And at this point, we had to make the call, like, do we wait and try to, try to, try to de-escalate the situation and fight the mob, or do you just – really try to exit and get out of there and it just seemed like there was no way that you could engage this mob they were armed with now sticks and uh they were using their flags and banners to beat people there's just no way that you could do anything anymore um it's definitely not like the scene in um to to uh kill a mockingbird where scout shuts down the mob by herself Uh, that's definitely not happening instead it's people getting sucker punched and falling down on concrete and more people are kicking them and just, like, I don't know what happened because you, you can't even see that. So we make our way out, um, and we're, we're getting on Facebook and trying to figure out what happened. But by this time, it's, I think, like, closer to 6.30, and I finally connected with Nima. Uh, and we're just trying to find out more news because at UC Davis, this event also got shut down. And Milo took it in good stride and had an after party at the local Hilton. And I thought like, hey, um, you know, this is UC Berkeley. Um, you know, if I had a big tour bus, where would I park that? And I kind of know the area. And I guessed at where he might be. And we thought, hey, maybe we'll go there and just see if we could start trying to, try to find Milo. And um, then we're just, then we, so we went to the uh, double tree by the marina. And me and Nima just like, we didn't find anybody there or see the tour bus. So we decided just to hang out there and talk a little bit and have a beer. And then some, sometime in the conversation, I'm like, hey, do you know Stefan Molyneux? And he's like, oh, I've been on the show and blah, blah, blah. And here we are today. And we're like, hey, we should get on the show and report what was happening you know, from the street. So here we are. And uh, as it turns out uh, today, some leftist douchebag tweeted out the location of Milo's bus. And they all had to flee the bus. And it ended up being vandalized, which uh, is not an argument. But... Um, so how was it relative to your expectations? Obviously, you went there with the expectation that you'd get to see the speech. Um, were you very surprised when it was canceled? Uh, I, 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 did, I, I, was, I expected it to be canceled, but not in this way. I've, I've, I've seen brutality, but I've never seen 50 to 100 people ready for violence to the point where, they're, where, they, where they want to break bones and kill someone and feel blood on their fists. Uh, that was really, really unnerving. And even to this to this moment right now, I still feel like the after effects of like 
pepper spray or tear gas and I'm still having like a light headache and my face is still kind of on fire. And it's just like, it, it, it still shocks me that this really happened last night. Like I cannot believe civilization broke down where a mob formed and they just started vandalizing everything from cars to the local Starbucks and, and, and everything. Well, that's what the left does. The, le the left is murderous. I mean, we can see this with national socialism. We can see this with communism. Uh, it, it is murderous. I mean, there, there are significant elements within the left who want us all dead. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they would like to do, as Ann Coulter points out, they would like to do to Sarah Palin or maybe even Ann Coulter what uh, they did to Marie Antoinette. And uh, there is an emptiness and a demonic possession that occurs in an indoctrinated mob where because they feel that their enemies are inhuman, they have the right to descend to worse than animals. Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, we're just still shocked at how how well organized it was. And you only needed about 100 or so agitators to really set the pace for the whole event. Everyone stands on the side and watches. The police have their orders to not engage. And you see all this chaos and this madness. And this is the thing. Because, you know, a lot of people were messaging me after my video yesterday saying, well, it was just a, a tiny number of people. It's like, hello, that's all it takes. You know, what was the population of people who wanted to overthrow the Romanovs in 1917 in Russia. What was what proportion of the population were the communist cadres under Lenin? 0.000001%? Doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot of people to cause this kind of chaos. Yeah, there were a thousand people out there protesting, and I'll get to my rant about protesting in just a moment. And uh, about 200 of them turned feral, and uh, that's all it takes. In fact, it wouldn't even take that many. Um, it doesn't. Also, they were supported by everyone else. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's it's the support. See, the left, the extreme left, they understand the media better than the right does. They know that the media is uh, on their side. That the media will cover things up. That the media will portray anyone who fights back as violent and horrible. Because that's the big question. I was talking about this with Mike today. This is a big question. Like. Everyone's like, well, if I were there, I would have fought back. I would have done this. I would have, you know, given those guys a taste of my... And the question is, and I think I know the answer, but why? Why don't people um, fight back? I think because they're not organized. Well, <laughs> I mean, if the right could have come government. down and been organized, right? Right, but they didn't. But why? I'm not saying they should. Or shouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to see pitched battles in the street, obviously. But in terms of basic self-defense, why is the right not organized? Maybe part of it recognizes that if they actually fight back, that's what the others had once. That's what the media wants. Eh, eh. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's it. I think, uh, well, is, let me tell you what I think. Maybe you're right. You were there, right? But let me tell you what I think. I think that for several years, the left has been the, the, the left for many years has been very frustrated in their inability to get rid of guns, because you know that's what the left wants to do. If you want a dictatorship, not that all people on the left want a dictatorship, but the extreme forms, well, you don't want people having guns. The first thing that wannabe dictators do is pass gun control. Now they've not been able to do that. So what 
have they been trying to do through the media? What they've been trying to do, I believe, is they've been trying to disable the Second Amendment by making self-defense a suicidal social action. It started with Zimmerman, and before that as well, but it started with Zimmerman, who used self-defense, according to the courts, used self-defense against Trayvon Martin. His life was destroyed anyway. You know, he was slandered, he was lied about, they manipulated, they escalated, and so on. Darren Wilson, attacked by Michael Brown, exonerated, but he has to quit the police force, and he's got to look over his shoulder for the rest of his natural life, and where the hell is he going to get a job, and how is he going to support his family? And he faced investigations and trials and charges and well, it didn't go as far but he was investigated for civil rights violations and so what happens this is occurring over and over and over again the people who use force in the defense against a protected class and the protected class is people on the left it's not gays because milo's gay so they're trying to repeal the second amendment through making self-defense on the right such a catastrophic event that people would rather just get beaten up than defend themselves, especially because everyone's got video cameras and cell phones and so on. So someone's going to be attacked and they're going to fight back. And I think everyone knows deep down the most likely outcome is someone's going to catch it on film. And just like the Rodney King incident, which was selectively edited to make the police look insane and resulted in massive riots in Los Angeles and other places, a billion and a half dollars worth of damage or a billion dollars worth of damage done, deaths and maimings and so on, that the media is going to get a hold of the footage of you with a MAGA hat on defending yourself against the initiation of force. They're going to selectively edit it and make you look like the crazed Nazi. And then your face is going to be all over the newspapers. And it's going to be all over the blogs, and you're going to be targeted, you're going to be marked, there are going to be investigations. And even if the best outcome happens and you're found perfectly innocent, welcome to the rest of your life with everyone knowing who you are and thinking that you were just unjustly let go by Trump's administration because you were wearing a MAGA hat, but they're going to make it right. They're going to get even with you. If it's the last thing they do, welcome to the rest of your life. They have rendered self-defense inoperable by creating all of these hysterical baiting narratives that portray people who are defending themselves against violence as the initiators, the aggressors, the racists, the whoever, right? They turn their lives into conflagrations of ostracism and, and hate and, and slander because they're exercising the right of self-defense. They need to disarm the right. Now, they can't take away their guns, but they can take away their right of self-defense. And they've been working on that for years. And they've been disarming the cops through the Ferguson effect, right? The cops now are hesitant. Right, that we saw this footage um, a year or two ago of, um, I think it was a detective, being beaten up by a black suspect. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, beat me up. I'm not going to fight back because I know what happens if I do. So I think that they're attempting to disable the capacity of the right to defend themselves. They can't take their guns, but they can make it easier to get beaten up than defend yourself because everyone, I think, knows what the media would do. Uh, and what kind of narrative they would paint, even if they didn't have footage, or maybe even especially if they didn't have footage on who you were and what you were doing. Innocent protester out peacefully demonstrating against Trump is viciously set upon by heart, right? Right. Yeah, I think that analysis as a California gun owner is is spot on. We we we've lost the will to to defend ourselves because we know the well, no, it's a cost benefit. It's not, cost. It's not, sorry, it's not a will. It's a cost benefit. 
You know, there used to be an old saying, better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. And it's not that it's not the will. It's not, oh, the will just faded away. It's, it's incredibly risky. You might end up with a life that you almost wish you hadn't saved uh, if the media gets hold of the story. And we know where the media sympathies lie with these rioters. You defend yourself. Um, you are you are in for a world of hurt, I would believe. And I think because it has to be. There are a lot of people uh, who are um, well trained. They they go to gyms. That you know, and and they know martial arts. But I don't see anyone defending themselves. And I think I think it's because of this. Again, I wasn't there, but that's my thought. Yeah. Pretty traumatizing. Now, what's the what's the fallout been? What's it been like there? Now that it's Friday, this happened last night. What is it like the day since? What what have you guys been up to, other than you know visiting yourself like crazy? <laughs> uh, it's it's really bizarre. It's like you have to go back into the matrix after you just got out and witnessed all of this. And uh, it's very casual. I shared this um, in 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 different in, in on on social myself and. I got maybe three friends interested. Um, no one really cares. It, it's True. not a big deal. Same here, yeah. I mean, that's what's most upsetting of all of it, I think. First of all, the giggling and the cheering from everyone at Berkeley uh, who was bystanders, or majority of them at least. But then also the silence today, it's just unbelievable. And then the things that people actually uh, pretend to care about. Now, silence from, from who? From, uh, I would say, from um acquaintances and friends and what what is the um what is your sense of what's behind this silence well i looked for example on cnn i saw the, the way they reported on the story was the headline today was uh milo yiannopoulos wants to make hate speech cool at college campuses or something like that so and then I also looked at Fox and CNN today. I didn't really see a whole lot of reporting on it, honestly. I don't know. Maybe last night I know they did, but today um, I didn't see much um, attention to the event. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly listened to and watched some of Milo's stuff. Um, it's assertive, but it's fact-based. He's got a strong research team, and he's he prevents uh, presents uh, facts and statistics and arguments and. Um, uh, this phrase hate speech, I mean, I, I don't want to go off on a whole rant, but this phrase hate speech, um, it's not an argument and uh, it's not engaging people in the realm of ideas. It's just attempting to cloak them in a negative language, negative pejorative so that people think, oh, well, he's just a hateful person and, and blah, blah, blah. He's upsetting people. And it's a way of blaming the victim, right? It's a way of blaming it's like It's like calling a short skirt rape speech. It's like, yeah. no, it's just, uh, uh, it's just a way of, of uh, making someone sound hateful so that nobody has sympathy for them and has sympathy for the rioters. Yeah, it's almost like a setup, isn't it, from people from above to to call to brand someone something that you know people then just go and and beat everybody up over. Well, this is how stupid everyone's getting. You know, he's a white supremacist, which he's not. He's a white ethno state, not which he's not. Uh, he's hate speech, which he doesn't. I mean. He's the a moment, Nazi. See, any intelligent He's a Nazi person, Jew. the moment that you hear this, you know, big fusillade cannon face of ridiculous pejoratives aimed at someone, the first thing you'll say is, well, why aren't you telling me what he's saying that is so objectionable? Or, or if you see the titles of articles 
rather than, well, here's the arguments and here's where he's wrong. Here's where he's false. Here's where he's incorrect. But the moment people just say, well, here's a provocative. OK, so he makes some provocative article titles that are surprising. Guess what? You know, people can mine what I've said over the past 10 years and come up with some really startling stuff, you know, and, and you know, with no context and no data and all that. But any intelligent person, and I don't mean even super smart, just like basic common sense. The moment that someone is presented to you as just bad, terrible, but there's no content provided. No content provided and no um, context provided. Well, everyone knows that that's just terrible. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-factual. Don't tell me the conclusions. Don't tell me he's a this or he's a that. Don't tell me the conclusions. Tell me what his arguments are and how he's incorrect and how, after being shown he's incorrect, he refuses to change his stance. And uh, this um, this is mad. And how Milo ends up in the category of hate speech when the Women's March gives a microphone to a woman who tortured, who kidnapped and tortured a gay man and killed him and went to prison. How is that not hateful? Uh, and a woman who supports um, Sharia law and uh, has some sympathies for the Islamic State. I mean, how is that not hateful, uh, hate speech? Uh, it's It's all, I don't know. If we had... A population that had any kind of education, um, any real education, then these tricks wouldn't work, which is, which is why, of course, you can't get any real education in government schools because it's all about the feels. Oh, it's hate speech. Well, that's all I need to know. <laughs> really? Really? That's all you need to know. Well, fuck, even Socrates got his day to make his speeches, but, um, uh, it's madness. Madness. So it's silent. It's silent. It's silent. Yeah. And there is a kind of sympathy for the violence and condemnation for you guys. I get a sense of that in that kind of silence. Yeah, and and CNN.com right now, I'm looking right now, I don't see the story anywhere anymore. Fox News, I don't see any story. I just see a note that Milo's going to be on Tucker tonight. No no real prominent story. Well, that's... Mike, did you want to jump in and and talk about what you were feeling yesterday? Because you had some ambivalence about all of this and how you thought it might actually help the cause of reason uh, in the long run. Well, seeing all this stuff, I was angry just like everyone else was at the senseless violence that was going on. On this show, Steph's talked about for years and years and years, the application of the non-aggression principle, and I'm right there. I want to see as little violence as absolutely possible in the world and society at large. So seeing this kind of stuff naturally is terrible, especially when it's people that you know and have interacted with before. So all that being said, I'm pissed off. I'm angry. I'm seeing it. I see women getting smashed in the face with flagpoles, pepper sprayed. Boy, if you're a case-selected individual, that's a bit of a trigger. And looking at it the next day, it's like, well, if you wanted to actually deal with some of the problems that society is having right now, this type of response from the left, you couldn't write a better one for the people that are sensible to contrast with, you know, the people that were on the fence in the last election, the people that were pro-Hillary, the people that were Democrats but didn't like what happened when Bernie getting screwed of the nomination and everything of the sort, the people that were like, okay, I'm going to buy into what the media is saying about Donald Trump. Maybe they didn't look into the untruth about Donald Trump. Maybe they just went on what was being reported in the media. Those are the people, the people that still have a rational brain, a couple brain cells to rub together, an IQ point or two to spare. Those are the people that are looking at what's happening at places like UC Berkeley and going, what the hell is going on with the left? 
what the hell is going on with my party? What the hell is going on with the mainstream media, which seemed to be very upset when Donald Trump once said back in the good old days, you know, we, you know what we do to those kind of people when you had a protester that was getting rough and violent at the event. They were all over Donald Trump for that. And we had to hear about it nonstop over the course of the last what? It was over a year. We had to hear about that. He said it once. OK, well, look at this. Look at all these leftists, all these big Hollywood figures that are, good God, Sarah Silverman calling for <laughs> calling for revolution. Uh, the response, the contradictions, the hypocrisy, the violence. There's not a lot of reasonable people in the world that want to be associated with this. So this kind of stuff happening and being put on blast, top story in the world last night, I think it does a whole lot to help the cause of the people that actually want to have a conversation. It does a lot to help the cause of the people that want to have a discussion about the problems in society. It does a lot to help the cause of the people that are against violence in all forms. And anyone, anyone that is not actively condoning this, this type of violence, they are supportive of it. If you are not actively disavowing what happened at UC Berkeley last night, you support it, and I will treat you in the future, and I suggest everyone else do the same, as if you support, condone, thumbs up, 100% approval on what happened at UC Berkeley. Because those on the left that have created this atmosphere, everyone's a Nazi, everyone's a racist, everyone's a bigot, a misogynist, a homophobe, whatever. You are the people that are responsible. And I think it's incredibly important moving forward that those who do not actively condemn this violence are treated like the supporters of it that they are. And that means you don't go see their movies. If they're a producer, if they're an actor, an actress, you don't see their movies. You don't financially support them in any way. If they're a company, the CEO of a company comes out and says something incredibly stupid, you don't support them in any way, shape, or form. The left has been very effective at using ostracism in all its forms, financial, you know, social, everything along those lines, to actually get things done. And oddly enough, in the past, when Steph pointed that out and talked about the power of social ostracism, because if it's not social ostracism, it's going to be violence and fists. Well, people didn't like that very much. But look what the left is doing. Ostracism in all its forms. Look, we dug up a tweet from five years ago that said something that could be taken out of context and misconstrued. Boom, people are fired. This is what the left does. The right needs to look at this. They, the sensible people of the world need to look at this and understand that this is the game that's happening. And we need to hold everyone on the left, everyone that's not condemning this violence, condemning this type of behavior, we need to hold them responsible and give them a taste of their own medicine when it comes to social and economic ostracism. Because if we don't do that, if it's not something to be solved through peaceful non-association, if it's not something that can be solved through arguments, if it's not something that can be solved through discussions, it's going to escalate to the point of violence, and I don't want that. Steph doesn't want that. The majority of the people that listen to this show that have talked about the non-aggression principle for a decade plus, they don't want that. Unfortunately, when you see riots, people getting hit in the head, women getting pepper sprayed, it's hard to look at that and say, well, if that doesn't stop, if that continues to escalate as it has been, this isn't going to end until there's mass chaos and violence in the streets, and the police and the National Guard are going to have to be called out.
It's going to be violence. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be everything that the media has warned that Donald Trump is. He's terrible. He's His campaign's chaotic. Oh, my God. He, he's going to get the nuclear button. They are going in that direction. And I think at this point, there's certain elements within the leftist community that they want that to happen. They were terrified of Donald Trump. They want it to happen so badly that they're going to manifest it themselves. They're going to create the violence and then blame it on Trump. The only option for reasonable people at this point is to make the case, make the arguments, use social and economic ostracism in all its forms to push back against this, and then see what happens. Because if that doesn't work, it's going to wind up being violence. And at that point, the job of the philosopher is over. If it comes down to violence, then, okay, it's going to be the National Guard, it's going to be the police, it's going to be the military, and we'll see how it shakes out. But this can't continue. This won't continue. It's only escalating, and something's got to give at some point. So if you don't condemn this shit, you support it, and the blood is on your hands moving forward in regards to what happens. Uh, ten, ten years ago, well, seven, seven years ago, I gave a speech at Libertopia, Libertopia 2010. And um, we'll put a link to it below. It's a very, very good speech. This is seven years ago. I told people exactly what they needed to do to avoid this kind of escalation, that they needed to um, try and bring reason and evidence to those around them. But if people around them refused to give up their addictions to state power, if, in other words, if there's someone in my life who wants me to go to jail for following my conscience, they will not give up their addiction to state power, you need to not have a relationship with that person. Now, you don't, you can give up your ideals and you can continue to have relationships with whoever the hell you want. But if you really believe in the non-aggression principle, then you try to talk to people and bring them to reason. And if they still want you thrown in jail for following your conscience, for disobeying um, what the uh, state unjustly demands that you do or forces you to do, um, then ostracism. And it's not ostracism out of hatred. It's ostracism out of love. Because ostracism is not the end. You know, a boycott doesn't mean you will never, ever, ever go back to that business. You might say, until you guys stop doing X, I'm not coming back. Ostracism isn't forever. It simply says, in your current moral state, uh, I cannot associate with you because uh, you um, wish violence inflicted upon me for my peaceable and voluntary activities. And hopefully then people get that you're serious about it. And you actually, by by going to the ostracism, by refusing to associate with people who want you thrown in jail for peaceable activities, you, you show them that you're serious and hopefully you bring them around with that, right? Not, not all arguments are intellectual. Some of them are empirical. How much do you believe what you believe? So seven years ago, I, I gave this speech. It was a long speech. I took questions from the audience. Uh, I've been talking about it for close to 10 years. And people have thought, Many people have thought it appalling that I would ever bring this up. But I brought it up because I know that this is where we come to if we don't use this. The left understands the power of ostracism. How about we learn from them and actually use it for good rather than for for evil? And um, anyway, it's just one of these things that, um, you know, if, if you heard these arguments uh, from me um, seven, eight, nine years ago and you didn't do it, it's on you, too. It's on you. If I mean, it's on you. Uh, I, I, my conscience is perfectly clear 
perfectly clear. I told everyone what needed to be done, what was necessary to avoid this kind of escalation. Uh, a few people did it, and a lot of people got mad at me and said, that was crazy. My goodness, why would you actually want to live your values to the point where you decide your relationships based on your values? <sighs> but um, if you heard these arguments and thought they were crazy or said I was crazy, um, this violence is also on you because this could have been easily avoided and many, many more people could have been brought to the light uh, by the empirical energy behind your values. And values that are only talked about, nobody really takes them very seriously. So I just wanted to uh, point that out. And guys, is there anything else you wanted to mention before I finish off with my uh, what I dislike about protests rant? <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a definite silver lining here. This is sort of like Twitter banning Milo, uh, but even better and bigger because now Milo has more influence and he's being catapulted up to another plane of leadership. So He's going uh, on to Tucker like Carlson tonight. He may, yeah, in fact, be and, on right now. I don't know. And and it, it, if, if you look at his book... 9 p.m. Eastern. Oh, great. And if you actually look at his book, um, it's just pre-orders right now, but it's number five. For all top 100 books on Amazon, it's number one for politics and government on censorship, number one on politics and government with commentary and opinion, number one for uh, political humor. Um, that, that That's huge for him. Yeah, you know, this is this this is a ridiculous analogy, but there used to be, I don't know if it's still done, but there used to be this glitter dust that you put on drums. Uh, you can see it in some 80s videos. I think it's in a Prince video or two. And, you know, it's always slow motion. You know, the drummer hits the drum and the glitter dust just goes spiraling up into the air, obscuring the entire scene. Well, this is what happened. They've hit the drum. And uh, I guess it's appropriate for Milo. The glitter dust is <laughs> rising up for everyone to see. And I, I have to tell you, I mean, um, this is going to come as a surprise uh, for these people. But I actually love them. I love them. I love Milo. I love Mike. Uh, I love the people who are doing all of this incredibly courageous stuff, many of whom have been on the show. I don't just like them. I love them. I will have their children. I just, I think it's incredible what they're doing. Um, Milo's courage in facing up to what he's facing and doing what he's doing is so brave uh, and uh, so powerful because he is exposing the left in a way that ideas and words and debates and trolls and arguments and message boards simply couldn't do. He is drawing them out of their caves and exposing them for what they are. Not, and it's, people are, well, it's only 200 people. No, that's not what it's about. It's not about the 200 people. It's not about the 200 people. They're the mere tip of the iceberg of what is going underneath to make those 200 people know that they can do what they're doing. It's all of the enablers, it's all of the avoiders, it's all of the supporters, it's all of the provokers, it's all of the baiters, all of the media, the, the academia, all of the stuff that's going on, not all of them, most of the media. Everyone who's out there giving them support, everyone who's refusing to push back, everyone who's refusing to demand people disavow, everyone who's refusing to push people into the light so we can see them for who they are. And what a lot of people I enormously love are doing are shining a light on some very, very dark places in the world that were tunneling under us and taking us down. And I love, respect, and admire these people for what they're doing more than I can possibly, possibly express. So, let me just do a tiny bit on protests. Ugh! Yeah, you got a right to protest. And you should protest if you really, really feel it's important. 
And this is not all protests, but it's most of the protests I've ever seen in my life. And by protests, I don't mean you gather with some signs to hear some speeches. That's fine. You know, go hear some speeches. Those are at least our, our arguments and so on. But what I'm talking about is when you got that tinny ass megaphone and you're blaring some stupid shit, whether it's in a library or not, you're just two, four, six, eight, ha, 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 ha. Who got the power? We got the power. Who fight the power? We fight. Oh, come on. Come on. This is idiotic. It's retarded and it's embarrassing. Protests are not an argument. Chants are not an argument. Signs, in general, are not an argument. And getting together and mouthing idiotic, empty-headed pseudo-monk slogans is not an argument. Protests are idiotic for the most part. So if someone's coming to your town and you don't like what they have to say, here, let me, I can't believe I actually have to say this. Let me tell you what you need to do if you want to be considered a brain cell and a half by anybody with half a brain. Someone's coming to your town. You don't like what they're saying. Here's what you do. This is going to be a challenge. Go and find the library. You don't have to do it in a library, but I hear ever since that Chinese guy came by, they're pretty quiet. But anyway. Go to the library. Find that person's book. It's free. Libraries, magic places. Open their book. And those little squiggles on the page can magically set your brain on fire with new ideas. It's alchemy. It's beautiful. You read what they've written. And a highlighter might be a bit too much. You can probably get free pencils. Um, you know, around. They may have some at the library. You People leave pens behind. Don't mark up. Or photocopy about it. But don't mark up the library book. But make notes of what... The argument is of the person who's coming to town, you don't like what they're saying. And then what you do is, wonderful place called the internet, you can write your rebuttals to what that person is saying, or you can record them on a webcam, on your cell phone. I've done it a whole bunch of times, uh, other articles I disagree with. And you can prove this person wrong. And then what you do is you try and get as many people as possible to read your criticisms of what that person has written or spoken or said. And maybe you'll have to spend a little bit of money. Uh, you could maybe promote it with, with ads or whatever. But it's okay, because you've got to spend gas money to go and protest. You've got to, I guess, first you sniff the fumes of the paint can, and then you make your sign so that it's more comprehensible to you. And you might need some throat soothers after you've been chanting stupid shit all day. But what you do is you find a way to rebut the person's arguments and you engage at that level. Going down and virtue signaling your horrified, empty-headed disapproval of what the person's saying is unbelievably ridiculous. It is basically like saying, the person inside with the microphone is a warlock who frightens me. Now, I don't know what strange magic they're doing to convince people's minds. It must be a form of mass hypnosis. There must be some Kool-Aid involved. But they're doing something weird to change people's minds. Now, I don't know what it is because it's a weird kind of voodoo magic. But I do know this, that I'm going to stand out here and I'm going to try and disrupt their magic spell. Because I read in the player's handbook, huh, inside joke, I read in the player's handbook that if you interrupt the spellcaster while in the process of casting a spell, you disrupt the magic. The magic goes away. The spell is broken and people are no longer woo -woo -woo hypnotized by the warlock or the witch with their magic words. 
So I'm going to come out here with my electrical voice amplification box and attempt to disrupt the magic of the spell that they're casting. Protests show you don't have an argument. If you had a good argument and a good way to present it, because, you know, it's important not just to have content, but form, it's important not just to be right, but to be engaging, to be entertaining, to be funny, to be enjoyable, to be witty, to use different voices. <laughs> and that's what they don't like about Milo. It's not his arguments. His arguments can be fantastic. Some of them original, a lot of them I've heard before. What they don't like about Milo is he has a medium-sized supernova's worth of charisma uh, and uh, some truly, truly astoundingly excellent hair. And they don't like the fact that he's enormously charismatic. They don't like the fact that he's enormously funny. Same thing with Ann Coulter. Incredibly charismatic. Incredibly. I mean, Ann Coulter is like jaw-droppingly hilarious uh, in written form, which is not the easiest thing to do. You try writing books about the French Revolution and make them funny. <laughs> I mean, it's really... I, I, I'm in awe. I love Ann Coulter. Too. But... You've got to work on charisma, on engagement, on connecting with people, on you've got to practice like crazy to become good at communicating in this way. What I do doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, I was doing it. I was practicing speeches uh, in my spare time for years before I ever pointed a webcam or a microphone at my face. So you are confessing you don't have an argument. You don't understand what an argument is. You don't understand how to analyze an argument and rebut it. And you are just saying you're frightened of classical music, so you're going to fart a lot. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. Not all protests are like that. Nah, apunto. Anyway, but I just wanted to point that out. The people who are coming out and protesting, it's noise, it's it's static, it's not an argument, it's not intellectual. Um, you're simply showing that you think it is valid to drown people out with amplification systems that your tiny pea brains could never have invented in about a billion years. So just wanted to make that point. Let's move on to the next caller, guys. Thanks so, so much for um, uh, checking uh, out the show. And I really, really appreciate getting the eyes on the ground. For those who don't know Nima, you can search up uh, uh, Econ Junkie. Uh, he's got a blog, which is excellent. Warren, do you, I don't know, do you feel like saying anything you've got on the web or should we just <laughs> keep moving? Um, I don't have anything yet, but okay. I'll definitely be if back. you do, let us know. But guys, thanks so much for the boots on the thanks, ground. Steph. Yes, sir. Oh, I said thanks, Steph. Oh, sorry. I thought you yeah, Steph. I thought, I thought I was missing something. Um, do you want to give us your your blog, Addy? Oh, it's economicsjunkie.com. Economicsjunkie.com. All right. Well, thanks, guys, so much. Uh, let's move on to the next caller. All right, up next we have Brandon. Brandon wrote in and said, As the product of teenage parents, I struggle with the fact that I've turned out, quote-unquote, all right. But hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children from broken homes don't share the same fate. With the statistics out there showing the wide majority of children from broken homes ending up in poverty, jail, or worse, what makes a difference in those like myself? And is there anything we could do to assist the majority? That's from Brandon. Oh, hey, Brandon. How you doing? I'm well, Steph. How are you? I am all right. I am refreshed by the energy of the audience, uh, which is nice. And uh, do you want to mention a little bit about... Oh, we've got a presentation called The Truth About Single Moms, Single Motherhood, which people should look up at uh, youtube.com slash free domain radio. So I won't go over all the statistics because I've done it before. But did you want to mention something about any of the troubles that you had in your own childhood growing up? with a teenage 
uh, parents uh, and, and you didn't say single mom, but you know it's uh, not a great indicator either. Uh, or the um, the the childhoods of of your friends where you saw dysfunctions. Uh, absolutely, actually, uh, you know, a good friend of mine growing up, he was him and I were in similar situations. Um, I was very fortunate because I had my maternal grandparents pretty much raised me. Um, my paternal grandparents were involved, but my father was off in the military for the first few years of my life. But uh, seeing them every now and again, um, it's kind of troubling not really knowing my dad up until I was about maybe six, seven years old. Um, that was probably the biggest struggle. Yeah. You, you mentioned it in some of your shows, you know, that you kind of need a father figure as a boy growing up. And uh, yeah, trying, trying to fi- try and figure out how to shave in a single mom yeah. household. Seriously. I remember there's a Michael Keaton movie from years ago. He's dying and he gives videos to his kid. And, and one of them is like, here's how you shave, up and down, not side to side. I actually learned how to shave by looking at an old Life magazine from the 1950s, which had a, ser- a series uh, like that's That's how I learned how to shave. My mom couldn't help me. Oh, wow. Luckily, my dad was back before uh, that happened. But <laughs> yeah, my dad, uh, he came back from the Marines. I think uh, I was about eight years old when he was when he finally left for good. Do you know why he left? Well, when I when he got out of the Marines, um, he left pretty much to be with me. Uh, we spoke about it a few times as I got older. Um, you know, his dream growing up was always to be a Marine. That's all he ever wanted to do since he was a child. And by the time you know, I was conceived, he was kind of too far through the process to just quit. So uh, he did his tours. He uh, came back, did four years in the reserves so he could be closer to me. And then uh, about when I was eight years old, I believe he left the reserves, eight or nine in there. And uh, he was a pretty big part of my life from there. Do you know why you were conceived if he was just about to head off? Was it an accident or? Yeah, I don't believe it was on purpose. Um, Teenage parents might be an understatement. Uh, My dad was 16 going on 17 and my mom was about 15. So, uh, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was uh, really teenage. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So he might have just been learning how to shave, too, when you came along. Wow. <laughs> Probably. Right. Well, we're Italian. We start young. Oh, yeah. Back of the hands, yeah. knuckles, yeah. top of the neck. Yeah. My okay. struggle. <laughs> All right. Um, Certainly. And we have your adverse childhood experience score. And I would just recommend people go check this out. We had Dr. Vincent Felitti on the show years ago about this, the Absurdist Childhood Experience Score. You can also go to bombinthebrain.com to learn more about this. So you had a score of four. I'm sorry about that. Verbal abuse and threats, physical abuse, non-spanking, parents divorced, lived with alcoholic or drug user. Uh, what was that last one? That's um, the other ones I generally understand. But what was the last one? Uh, my mother, I mean, she's cleaned up and sober. She's come a long way since then. When she was young, you know, probably up until her early 20s, she... Uh, she was a party girl, you know, basically left me with my grandparents and I, I really didn't see too, too much of her that I can remember growing up. Um, I found out as I got older, you know, she was uh, into some, some drugs back then and, you know, got herself into some pretty nasty situations. Luckily, I was too young to remember. Like what? Uh, uh, my grandfather actually told me of one situation where I was, I couldn't have been older than maybe a year, year and a half old where he actually had to kick down a door because, uh. Yeah, she basically left me off with her friends to to go be with some guy or get high or something. Uh, obviously, I was too young to remember. I got the but, story. Uh, second I'm sorry. There. What what caused your granddad to have to kick down a door? 
uh, she basically left me with some friends of hers from what I understand the story and uh, they wouldn't let my grandparents in. Um, I, he could hear me crying. My grandfather was always very protective of me and uh, he basically forced his way into the house to come make sure I was all right. And him and my grandmother came in and took me away and took me home. Right. Right. Okay. Well, is there anything you wanted to add? I mean, I've certainly given it some thought uh, today and I have some thoughts that hopefully will help, but I don't want to interrupt if there's more that you wanted to add about your history or, or the question. Uh, just a little bit I wanted to add about the history is, you know, I think, you know, part of my question was why I turned all right. And one of my theories is the fact that I did, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, my, my grandparents and my father was a big part of my life. He's, uh, you know, even though I live in a different state than my father, I live in the same state as my mother. I feel like I'm closer to him than I am to her just because of the, uh, the stability there. You know, the, the, he, he basically gave me that discipline that a father gives a, a son and, you know, uh, I, I guess that's my theory on, on why I turned out the way I did. Right. Right. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, I, I would, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about it uh, from your perspective. Okay. So I've talked on this show with, with experts about this aspect of intelligence and genetics. It is an absolutely essential topic for people to understand, and we're not going to talk about the race side of it, just in terms of the bell curve as a whole. Now, sure. estimates range when you're young of intelligence basically making up about between 40 and 60 percent uh, of your of your intelligence comes from your genetics. Now, later on in life, that seems to rise to about 80 percent of your intelligence is uh, is genetic. Now, let's take the worst possible scenario. It's usually, I think it's better than this, but let's take the worst possible scenario. And let's say that 80% of your intelligence is genetic. Boy, 20% is actually quite a lot. You know, when, when I was a salaried employee, I would like be angling for a 5% raise or, I don't know, 7% raise. We're like, woohoo, you know? <laughs> That's good. You know, 20% is <laughs> like know three to four, you know that feeling, three to four times that, right? And you're like, woohoo, I got a raise. And then you get your paycheck after they've deducted the taxes. And it's like, woohoo, the government got a raise. But, um, or if I said, uh, if I said to you, um, I've got this cologne that improves your chances of picking up women by 20%, you'd be pretty interested, right? 20% boost? I mean, th think of how much, um, how close people are in a race at the Olympics, right? It's the old Seinfeld joke, you know, the guy who's second is like, man, if I'd had a pimple on my nose, I'd have won. 20% is a big <laughs> deal. Now, and when you're young, you know, 40 to 60% is a big deal. So the environment stuff is really, really important. So people say, well, you've got this genetics and IQ stuff. It's like, well, why do you talk so much about parenting? Because environment is really, really important. It's not the whole story. I'm not you know, the, the sort of environmental determinist stuff that goes on that's too much on the left and, and not supported by the data. So, no, it's not all genetics, not all environment. We can't do much about the genetics, but we sure as hell can work on the environment. At least we can't do anything about the genetics yet, but we can certainly work on the environment. So trying to convince people to, um, you know, do, do, do the three things, do the three things that uh, get you into the middle class Almost every, every single time, you know, 49 times out of 50, this will get you to the middle class. Number one, finish high school. Number two, 
get and keep a job for a year. Number three, don't have children until you're in a stable marriage. Do those three things. You're not going to be poor. It's a kind of magic, right? It's just what you need to do. And and these things are possible. They're doable. You don't need to be a genius. <laughs> now, this single motherhood, the, the, the teenage motherhood and stuff like that, <sighs> well, the teenage motherhood is going down in America to some degree. Single motherhood is, is not. But it's new. This is not an IQ thing. Now, it's true that single mothers tend to have a lower IQ than married mothers in stable relationships and so on. But it's not the low IQ that causes them to become single mothers. Because if that were the case, there's arguments that people had lower IQs in the 1920s, but there sure as hell were a lot fewer single moms around. I mean, single moms around were in like the single digits now. Women under 30 becoming moms, like half of them are single moms. So how do you go from a couple of percentage points to nearly 50%? You get a welfare state, right? So this is one of the reasons why I really, really viscerally loathe the welfare state is that the welfare state provides entirely the wrong cues for the most vulnerable among us, right? Because what it does oh, is, is it says, oh, well, okay, so you, you had kids, fine. Here's a whole bunch of money. Here's free health care. Here's free housing. Here's food stamps. Here's, you know, money. Like, it, it provides entirely the wrong incentives. Now, I knew a guy when I was uh, young, younger, young. And he wanted to take the summer off, and, and he'd worked, and he was on, he was eligible for unemployment insurance. So he made his application, and, you know, he kind of looked for work, but he, not really that much. And he basically spent the summer bumming around, playing frisbee golf in, in the park and um, hacky sack and <laughs> seeing movies. And, and, he was, and then what he said was, after like two or three months of this, I remember sitting down with him and having a conversation with him about all this stuff. And he's like, ah. Oh, you know, it was good for the summer, but yeah, I can't spend my life doing this. <laughs> I mean, this is like, and and then he ended up becoming pretty successful and, and, and doing well. Because he's smart enough to realize that this is not, you know, there's not a good path to, to stay on, right? And I've, I've mentioned this about, this is not a welfare state story, but it's just a cool story that another friend of mine um, fin finished his college education. And he, he'd worked as a bartender. And he'd finished his college education and he came back and he didn't really know what he wanted to do and so on. And, and his, you know, the guy who ran, he was a very charismatic and good looking guy. And the guy who ran the bar called him up and said, man, there's a job here if you want it. Tips are great. Business is booming. You know, you could work here for a couple of years. Maybe we'll end, you'll end up a pot owner. You know, just, you know, he really wanted him to come back because that guy could pull the chicks like a gravity well. And he was like, he was walking over thinking he was going to take this job. And he was like, hmm. I don't know that much of a future here. So he ended up getting a job at an office and went sort of a more, I guess, professional route. Nothing against, you know, bar owners or anything like that. It's just he wanted to do something a bit more intellectual with his life. And this is the problem. I, I think it's absolutely terrible. The incentives that are out there for, for single moms and teen moms and so on, it's terrible because they're too young to have kids and single moms have a bad time of it. Now, if they're smarter, they say, ooh, you know, I've really got to make sure I don't get pregnant. I've really got to make sure I'm in a stable relationship because if I have kids without a father around, it's going to be rough. It's going to interfere with my education. It's going to interfere with my career. It's going to be, it's going to lower my sexual market value. won't be able to get a good man. So the smarter women, they get this stuff and they don't fall into that trap. The less intelligent women 
And this, you know, people get crazy with me about intelligence, like it's an insult. No, it's caring. It's love. I've seen up close what happens to single moms. I grew up in the matriarchal manners of dependent state, dependent single motherhood. My whole childhood, I saw dozens of families, knew hundreds of families with single moms. It was almost universally a soul-sucking, craptabulous, ghastly fest from hell. The single moms were stressed, they were panicked, they were upset, they were fighting with their teenage boys who didn't have much respect for them, there was trouble with the law, there was trashy guys floating through. The apartments like headless beholders with penises attached, I mean, there was just, it was a mess. And I don't want people to end up in that mess. Now, the people who are the least intelligent in society need the best cues from society. Religion used to provide these but one of the things that took down religion was the welfare state because it bypassed the need for community charity. And anyway, so with the welfare state encourages the less intelligent people to make the worst possible decisions for their lives. This is the great tragedy of the welfare state. It preys upon and traps for the purposes of political power. It preys upon the less intelligent and traps them to become giant farms of votes for bigger government, right? Like they call the... Um, Public housing, right? government housing, wealth, uh, they call them girlfriend farms because just women out there who'll be friends with benefits because they, you know, having no life with their <laughs> kids and all that. Well, these are just vote farms, right? The welfare state uh, is just vote farms, single motherhood and all that and teen moms. So it is out of love because the life of a single mom, teen mom, I mean, look at your mom's life when you were young. Was it Was it good? Was it quality? Was it good for her? No, no, I wouldn't say so. It was terrible. Um, it was terrible no, for her. Absolutely. Terrible for those around her. Terrible for you. Terrible for her body. Terrible for her mind. And then she gets stuck with the guilt of what she chose to do for the rest of her life. She's got to walk in eggshells around you, praying every single day. You don't bring it up. Make her feel bad. It's terrible. It's terrible. When I think of the incentives, even within my own family, when I think of the incentives and the decisions that were made that otherwise would have been made very differently, very differently. We need to care for the less intelligent in society. We need to care for the less intelligent in society. Now, the way that caring used to happen is that if a woman got pregnant outside of wedlock, she'd either, you know, before abortions, she'd go away, give it up for adoption, uh, 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 for abduction, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> give it up for adoption. And um, it would never be spoken of again, and, and it would try to be swept under the rug. But the parents would be very keen on making sure that the young woman in question did not get pregnant. Now, the welfare state and so on, you know, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And by making it not that bad financially, immediately, directly, the social control and pressure on young women to not get pregnant has largely evaporated, which has opened them up to terrible decisions like getting pregnant when they're teenagers, like getting pregnant when they don't have a stable provider around. Well, now they do. It's called the state, but state can't raise your children. And so what happens is right. you get these women who sacrifice years of their life, maybe not so much your mom when you were younger, but they sacrifice years of their life. And what happens is they don't end up being very good parents. They end up having an extremely dissatisfying and friction-filled, conflict-based family life. Their children grow up to be problematic sometimes criminal, um, dysfunctional, sometimes addicts, uh, sometimes bullies, sometimes victims of bullies. And they can't be proud of the kids that they've raised. And they can't be happy with the family 
that they have created. And the kids grow up, especially if they're sons without fathers, without a lot of respect for the mom, because either the mom couldn't attract a good man, in which case she's not worthy of respect, or she could attract a good man, but the good man ran away because she was such a horrible person, in which case she's not worthy of respect. It's a hell of a situation to be in. So everyone ends up miserable. The the children, the mom, society, the, the, the dads, I mean, everyone ends up miserable. And all of this could be prevented to a large degree, like significantly tenfold prevented by simply having the right incentives in place and taking care and, and making sure that the least intelligent among us have the best social structure by which to make decisions. And the best incentives, the most, I mean, people who are less intelligent, they need the incentives right in front of their nose. It can't be, well, you know, if you get pregnant now, woo, you, you might not get to do your second PhD when you're 30. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not, they need incentives like, boom, right in their nose, this close. Nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine. I have great affection for the less intelligent. I care about them enormously. We have to, those of us who have more intelligence, look around society and say, is it serving the less intelligent? Well, it's not. It's not. Hurting them up and putting them all in UC Berkeley is not helping UC Berkeley. I can tell you it's not going to help UC Berkeley when their funding probably gets cut. And also when employers say, oh, you got a degree at UC Berkeley? I'm sorry, that position has already been filled. Oh, you want me to donate to UC Berkeley? Why? Are you running out of mace? So uh, it is, <laughs> it's terrible all around. So working on fixing the incentives. You know, the, this fiat currency stuff this this welfare state money it's a drug the government is like a fiat currency drug dealer and it's brutal for the women they get sucked into this lifestyle that makes them miserable i mean i don't know if you look look at single moms or or like in in their middle age they're not happy people they're not happy people look at winona Ryder in stranger things yeah I dipped into it just after that asshole made the comment at the SAG Awards. Yeah, pretty pretty good portrayal. This is not a happy uh, woman. And um, it is making the less intelligent, the most vulnerable people in society, the most miserable. And if you care about them at all, you got to at least question the incentives that we're putting in front of their faces. Oh, absolutely. If uh, you don't mind, can I expand on that? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, just uh, and that single mother's going through a little bit of background on this. My, my mother did get married around 19, 20 years old, uh, maybe a little bit older than that. I know she met him about 18, 19. Um, ironically enough, they met in NA. Um, basically, you know, they went through, they had three more children. I have three very young sisters uh, between the ages of about 11 and 19. And she's a single mother again. Uh, basically marriage completely failed. She's living off his dime and it's just, it's, uh, it's a miserable situation over there. You know, it's, and I, I don't mean to speak poorly about her. I, I don't want to give that, uh, impression that I dislike my mother for any reason. Um, the situation over there is it, it's almost exactly what you're talking about with the, the single mothers in middle age is that they, she, she's completely miserable. She has no direction. She has no incentive to really do anything. You know, she's, she's not happy, you know, it's, uh, and she can't go back and very, fix what's made her unhappy, right? Exactly. There's no redo switch on it. My sisters are suffering for it because there's no direction at the house. It's just her being miserable. And, uh, she's not, I guess without, because, you know, she's living in 
the house that her ex-husband paid for and he pays her alimony and child support and you know pretty much she doesn't work but there's no incentive for her to work but also you can tell it's just a very trying to think of the word for it bland existence you know there's no uh, motivation there's no momentum to it if that makes sense yeah 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 and um where you know, where does she go she's got she's got decades still to go in her life and and what happens she's never going to be able to go back and be the kind of mother she should have been for you when you were young i'm not excusing her decisions but she was 15 her brain is still a decade away from its maturity. She, she's a child having a child. And she can't go back and uh, and fix it. And you can't ever go back and have the kind of mother that you needed to have and the kind of father that you needed to have when you were young. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the uh, mentality, so to speak, is because I, I really think it didn't, you know, having me so young have an impact on her permanently. You know, um, again, not to make excuses, but it, it seems like she hit a wall in terms of maturity um, I can remember clearly and I don't know if this comes back to the genetic intelligence you were talking about but right around 14 15 um, I do feel that I outmatured her you know it seems like she still does very much have that teenage mentality um, you know she constantly calls me up and you know, oh do you want to come over for a bonfire or, you know have have a few drinks and you know I, I have a house or, you know a wife kids of my own and I just I work for a living I can't she doesn't seem to see that you know it seems like did you, you ever, that, that did you ever in high school uh, nothing permanent you know i mean she was a, a server um you know odds and ends here and there uh cleaning houses when she was married to my no, ex-stepfather you know she was a stay-at-home mother she constantly blames that on her lack of career you know i, I gave up my career options to be a stay-at-home mom and it always struck <laughs> I, me i gotta think it out. maybe has more to do with the drugs and alcohol oh of course oh yeah of course you know i mean <laughs> go ahead um i was gonna say you know from what i can remember her i mean granted i was five six you know, she she didn't seem like she was really the uh academic type you know, especially not at that age. Right. But but she could have had a perfectly fulfilling and happy life, been a pillar of the community, being a good stay-at-home mom. All of these things could have happened if the incentive structures had been. And I'm not trying to say she's got no free will or no choice or anything like that. But less intelligent people need more immediate incentive structures for them to make the right decision. You know, smarter people, we can sort of look over the horizon and figure out blah 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 But we really need to design a society that helps the less intelligent people in society. And the one we have right now is this big, giant, stick, sticky trap of uh, honey that rots. Oh, I agree 100%. Um, you know, that would be the prime example. Um, I think, again, the only thing that got me out of it, because for all intents and purposes, you know, I've seen plenty of kids in my, who grew up in my situation, excuse me, um, who basically use it as a crutch. You know, oh, woe is me. I, I, I can't succeed. You know, I had my cards stacked against me. And, you know, I, I constantly tell them I, I had my cards stacked against me. And I I just pushed through it, you know. And I, I don't mean to say that their situations are any worse, but it seems like you said that the lack of incentive there, it just it doesn't push people forward like uh, like it should. Yeah, because I never wanted to take uh, government money. I had to. 
hustle like right to bust my ass to to get work and to make money what what, what what's your option then you just go sit around and watch daytime tv and design warhammer scenarios and take other people's money Ugh, gross <laughs> yuck also when i grew up i grew up uh, because i'm i don't know 50 right so i grew up and um there was still a lot of the fading remnants of welfare is for losers like welfare is a big giant confession that you failed and we there was ostracism like i actually i just went on google, google maps the other day for the first time ever you know the street view thing and i went sort of my old neighborhood and, and looked around and there's a lot of it a lot of it's still kind of the same although it looks different than i remember because i was much smaller then so everything looks smaller now because i'm bigger but um but there was we lived in these apartment buildings on this uh, council estate and in in the back there were these like grungy bungalows you know it reminds me of that the door song <laughs> got some bungalow and um there were, there were the welfare people back there, you know, the guys and the wife beaters and the grimy shorts uh, drinking beer and sitting out all day looking at the people going by and this is before the computers and the internet and cell phones and stuff. But um, you you didn't go back there. You know, that was that was kind of a sinister area. That was like a negative area. And uh, it was like those are the people who've chosen to go on welfare. A lot of them don't really seem to be that disabled or, or unable to work and they were ostracized in general. And um, that all began to decay, of course, um, as it got more normalized and so on. But I think I internalized that. Like, I I don't want to be the grimy guy with the pot belly and the wife beater and the grimy shorts uh, drinking a beer and watching the world go by and watching my life slip underneath me like a bowling ball into a pile of quicksand. And um, that gave, I think, me the, the incentive uh, to work. Now, of course, I had a lot of native intelligence, but it was the hustle that sharpened it. It was the hustle that gave me the training uh, and the discipline that I didn't get uh, at home. I mean, discipline in my house was ridiculous. You know, my mom would be like, you're grounded. And then like three hours later, hey, let's go see a movie. It's like, what? The? And actually, it was exactly the same in my house. Oh, yeah. No, single moms that can't possibly discipline. I mean, if they had discipline, they <laughs> wouldn't be single moms. But um, <laughs> so. And and here's the thing, too, and I don't know if you've seen this with your friends, but when you were talking about your mom saying you want to come over, whew, single moms, welcome to the extremely lonely second half of your life. Ooh, yeah. the interstellar isolation. They got no husband. Their kids have moved away. They don't have a close relationship with their kids because they usually weren't good moms. And they usually don't have a job, or if they do, it's not that great. And they have, you know, they've, they've passed 30 or 40 or whatever. They, you know, grown kids probably past 40, right? So their sexual market value is in the toilet. There are no guys who really want to date them. And they've got another 45 years to go. Statistically, they're not even halfway through their lives. And they're set up to be encased in this isolated history, like Han Solo reaching for a hug that never comes when he's got molten metal poured over him or whatever the hell that stuff was. And that loneliness creates this neediness and creates this guilt and this manipulation. Uh, I got a sense when your mom was calling out, you're like, come over for a bonfire. It's like, I'm so lonely. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's about right. Brutal. It's a horrifying existence that we're handing to these people, and it could all be fixed and changed so easily. Uh, all we have to do is care more about 
the less intelligent, more about the poor than we care about ourselves. You know, people say, well, if you get rid of the welfare state, it'd cause a lot of suffering. Eh, yeah, you know, men go to war, for God's sakes. You know, women can handle this. And uh, it would help. But people don't want to get rid of the welfare state because they'll feel bad and guilty, not because they care. You, you have to stop caring about yourself and start caring about other people in order to do what's right for them and what's good for them. Your mom, that's not a life you would you would wish on someone, is it? No, no, of course not. It's not. It's not uh, a confused and chaotic and addicted youth and, um, you know, hitting her child as, as you were hit. No discipline, chaos, um, desperately reaching for men who often recoil, loneliness, isolation, neediness. And uh, there's a reason why so many middle-aged women in America and other places are on these antidepressants and these psychotropics, because the incentives suck them into a life that chewed them up and spit them out on the other side with very little left to hang on to. It's horrible. It's horrible. And it can't no, be fixed. It can't be changed. I mean, what do you, you got to, should you move back in and, and be the pseudo husband? Cause this, you know, you know what happens. You're like, if you're the, if you're the son and there's no dad, welcome to being the little man of the house. Welcome to being mommy's little husband. Welcome to arrested development. Welcome to, oh, you don't really want to go and date those girls, do you? Mommy needs you. You don't really want to go out. Mommy needs you. You don't really want to go to that bar, to that disco. Mommy needs you. I can't get free. Actually, that would explain a lot of the tension between my wife and my mother. Go on. <laughs> well, um, yeah, my wife, uh, I actually met her when I was super young, but, uh, you know, her and my mother always got along until it became pretty apparent that we were, we were serious and it's, it's only gotten worse and worse since, uh, you know, we've gotten married, we moved in together and then we finally bought a house. I uh, also have a, two small children together and it's just, it's nonstop bickering and nine times out of 10, if it's not instigated by my mother, it's blown out of proportion by my mother. And, uh, was a situation just a couple of weeks ago, actually, it kind of prompted me to write in. Um, <clears throat> my wife made a, a very innocuous Facebook post. My mother felt offended by it. She felt called out by it and proceeded to basically start a, a war on Facebook that, you know, all my friends and family and coworkers can see it, which was wonderful. And uh, what, what do you what, 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 what do you mean? <laughs> I, I don't want you to get you in any trouble, but can you give me tiny details? A hint. Oh, sure. Um, but my mother. I guess runs a cat rescue, you could call it. She, she's a, a cat lady. I'm, I'm sure you couldn't see that coming. Um, mm. <laughs> so ho hopefully not a real pussy hat coming, coming down the driveway, but go on. So our cat got out, got into a fight. We needed antibiotics. Of course, we, uh, we tried calling my mother. My wife ended up putting a post out on Facebook asking, you know, anybody for help, uh, if they had any suggestions, you know, uh, just kind of asking the crowd and uh, somebody asked, well, why don't you ask Brandon's mom? And she said, oh, well, she's busy. She's got this, this, and this to do. My mother took that as just an unparalleled personal attack. You know, how could you say that I'm too busy when she, that's actually exactly what she said. And uh, wait, so proceeded. sorry, let me just, I always have trouble following the instigation of drama because I have a pretty rational brain and I can't figure out what the hell people are going on about. I don't mean you, I just mean your mom. So your wife needed the antibiotics and your mom said, I'm busy. 
And then your wife posted and, and then people said, why don't you ask your mother-in-law? And she said, oh, she said she was busy or she was too busy. And then your mom, when her words were accurately reported by your wife, got incredibly offended and upset. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what? Uh, I, uh, yeah. You bitch, you said what I said. That's it's a personal attack for you to repeat what I said. When you exactly. asked a factual uh, question about what I said and you told people the facts about what I said, that was horrible. And it's funny because you know, I'm, I'm a lot more like my father and I, I go to him with these problems. Uh, he's had the same reaction you have. He's like, why is she doing this? I know, I know, I know why she's doing it. I just, um, it just blows my mind. Like, I can tell you why, you probably know, but the reason just for those who are following along at home and currently trying to put their heads up their own ass so they don't hear the rest of the story. But the reason she's doing this is that women are hypersensitive to any perceived slights upon their familial in, um, allegiance. And so when your wife publicly said that your mother was too busy to help her, your mother freaked out because she would be perceived as selfish or uninvolved or uncommitted or aloof or too distant or too busy to take care of a sick animal, a cat, not interested in helping a sick cat. And, and it, it portrayed her in a social way, uh, in a way that flipped her out because she viewed it as... Um, People possibly perceiving her in a negative light because of what your wife said. Is that more or less what you would think, or is it something else? No, no, that's uh, that's essentially accurate. Um, you know, basically just it, it was all about her. You know, we were having this conversation about the cat, and it turned into, how could you say that about me? Right, and that's that's never a rhetorical question where anyone accepts the answer. How could you say that about me? Well, it's what you said. But, 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 those 90% of questions are just rhetorical and nobody will ever accept the answer that did you give them. So how did it turn? You said a war? How did it turn into a war? Uh, at that point, I ended up getting involved, which I, I rarely do because I just don't have time for it. Oh, no, you must. I'm yeah, sorry, my, man. My... She's your mom. It's your wife. You got to. You've got to. You chose your wife. You didn't choose your mom, but you're choosing to have her around. I'm afraid that's the job as the man. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. As it, as it proceeded, I, I basically just, it, it it turned into just a personal slugfest. You well, know, no, tell me all of, So what was said? She, she basically just went on about, uh, she brought up, the house and all the help she does with the girls and how she's made up for all her mistakes as a mom and you know it, it went on and on and i'm just trying to bring it back down to look it was an innocuous comment just calm down you you do this all the time just just let it go and she oh wait a minute infuriated you said that. to an upset woman calm down you do this all the time those are it two contradictory commandments to a woman's that. amygdala <laughs> Calm down. You're repetitively insane. No, no, no. Don't say that. No. That's not how you get a woman to calm down or anyone for that matter. You need to relax because you're constantly paranoid and irrational. Hmm. Did that help her relax? No, no, no. No, it didn't. It, uh, it continued to go on to the, just this slugfest. What I was getting at, though, was a day or two later. Is uh, She um, she texted me. She asked me to bring her food. She had... My 
one of my sisters was in the hospital and they were there late and she asked me to bring her food. So wait, like, I'm hey, sorry, I know you're still mad I'm at still me. I'm still not sure why your mom would call you. Is there no takeout? I couldn't tell you. I mean, maybe it was late. We live in a relatively small town where everything closes at 10 o'clock. She was lonely. <laughs> and now there's that too. And she began the text message with, I know you're still mad at me. The the point of the whole conversation I had with her two days before was, I'm not mad. You know, that this actually personally affects me. And it, it just went right back to her. And that's which basically what happens every time. Right. And what is the solution um, the, to, to this kind of escalation? What, how do you solve it? How uh, do you resolve it? It's not uncommon, unfortunately. And more often than not, it goes unresolved. Uh, basically, the two of us just kind of keep our distance for you know, whatever the period of time is. And we either run into each other at a family gathering or, you know, we, we just randomly start talking about something else irrelevant. And, you know, it, it just blows over until the next one. And How often do these things happen? Uh, maybe every month, every other month, maybe. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite a lot. You said that she was involved with your kids? Um, more lack thereof. Huh? What? Yeah, it's it's more of a lack thereof of involvement. Um, she. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> she she she's not involved. She she's not oh, she's involved. Not, okay. At least not the way I I think she should be. Oh okay. You think? You know, oh, you think um, she should be? You think that your kids would really benefit from an exposure, more exposure to this kind of personality? No, but I, I on the flip side of the same coin, I also feel like she doesn't make enough of an effort to. Uh, even just see them. I, I mean, she lives about thirty minutes away. Wait, we, wait, hang on. <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry. sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me compose myself. Man, you don't know how to, how to count your blessings, do you? No. I mean, holy God, man! If your mom is blowing up at your wife and and doing all this crazy escalation stuff, and you're like, boy, it'd be great if she was around more. What what am I missing? No, you're uh, you're you're probably right in that re- that respect. I guess it's just a. Uh, Did you ask your wife if, if your wife would be happy if your mom was around more? No, she wouldn't be. No, <laughs> not even a little. Quick, bit. quick question. Quick question for you, my friend. In terms of say pleasing the women in your life, do you think it's more important to please your mother or your wife? Oh, no, my wife. Yes, that is correct for a variety of reasons that uh, uh, were they to be violated, the play Hamlet would make a lot more sense. So um, (laughs) you kind of got it good. I just got the Hamlet reference. If she's not, I know, (laughs) I'm I'm doing a (laughs) chat with Duke Pester tomorrow about it, so I've been reading it. But uh, so you kind of got it good if your mom's not that involved in your kids, right? I mean, careful what you wish for, my friend. This is true. And I, I guess it just comes from an idealistic perspective. of how You'd I like to have the kind of mom that be. it would be nice if she was more involved in your kids. Right, right. Right. Rather than the mom you actually have, where there's some upside to her not being involved with your kids. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. People without enough to do, for some weird reason, I don't know why this is. Maybe you can help me out with this one. You're certainly closer to this than I am. Anybody like this is so deep in my rear view, I can't even tell you. (laughs) Were they wearing a sombrero the size of the Eiffel Tower? I still couldn't see them. But 
people who don't have enough to do, and it sounds to me like your mom doesn't have much work, you know, doesn't spend a lot of time around her grandkids, uh, not married, not dating much, I assume. People who don't have a lot to do, people who are lonely, seem to drift towards drama pretty uh, pretty regularly. I can't figure it out. Like, if I was lonely, then what I'd want to do is make other people enjoy my company so much that they'd keep inviting me over. You know, be so funny, sure, be I so guess. warm, be so engaging, be so helpful, be so, like, it's what I would do. It's what I would do. So, you know, I, I used to work, um, uh, after high school, I went to work for quite some time as a gold panner and prospector. And I talked about this before. But, and I'd work out for a couple of months and then I'd come back to town for a couple of weeks and then I'd go back and work out for a couple of months. It was a great way to save money because when I was working in the bush, they paid for everything and just deposited the money back in my account in Toronto. Now, when I would come back to town, I'd need some place to stay because I'd only be in town for a couple of weeks and then I'd go back for another couple of months working uh, up north. And so I would stay with friends. Now, I know that it was an imposition for me to stay with my friends. So I'd do their groceries, I'd, I'd cook, you know, I'd clean, I'd, I'd make their lives more enjoyable, we'd have great conversations. I'd make it so that when I was going back up north, they were like, oh man, you come, got to come and stay with me again when you come back down from the great white north. I'd be like, yeah, that'd be great. That, that's, that's how I ended up not having to pay I don't know where, where the hell I would have, I can't live, I couldn't afford to live in a hotel for a couple of weeks. I mean, it's just a gold panner. It's not like making a fortune. So when I needed things from people, it was an exchange, a trade, right? Now, it wasn't like if I was paying them, I'd be an asshole or anything. Because, you know, generally, if you're living with people, it's more fun if you're getting along. But I don't know what it is with people who are lonely and want more human contact, why they choose to have human contact through negative mechanisms, through drama, through war, through frustration, through upset, through being offended, through... It's like, why don't you use a little positive economics so people actually want to call you rather than feel guilty and call you, rather than feel cornered and call you, rather than feel like obligated and call you? Why don't you just make them want to call you by being nice? Um, Actually, I, I do have a theory on that. Now I'm just watching Please help the people me. around me. Help me. <laughs> You know, it seems like uh, there's always a side. You know, there's always people who are going to be on her side when when this drama occurs. And I I think that it's their positive confirmation that she's after. You know, whoever's going to take her side in this argument. Oh, Um, so people call her with, like, sympathy and, I can't believe she said that. And and another thing, and you're totally in the right. And, I, you know, this has been a problem for a while. And I stand by you and, like, all that kind of crap. Oh, definitely. One of uh, the situations uh, with my the wife. The secondary game called friends. allies. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> definitely. Um, one, of, one of the situations between her and my wife on Facebook, uh, one of her friends actually attacked my wife verbally on Facebook. No, but what was it. what was the conflict know. about? Wait, what was the war about? I, I don't remember how it started. Oh, uh, it was okay. probably something over one of my daughters or, or over me. Um, one of the things that upsets me and because it upsets me, upsets my wife, is my mother likes to take credit for my accomplishments. Like, uh, oh, look, this is my son. Look at what he's done. You know, kind of uh, like, it's like she's bragging on herself. My wife called her out on it one day. One of my mother's friends actually attacked my wife. You don't know. I'm guessing he didn't know who she was. 
um, you don't know what she's been through. You can't do this. You, you, you know, you better keep your mouth shut. And my wife just backed off. She's not a very confrontational person. Well, actually, that's and, just called uh, being a sensible person. I mean, why on earth would you want to engage with someone like that? Exactly. And she she didn't. And that's what I think she, my mother's after. If she does have these friends that in most cases are just like her who will back her up on these things and who will, oh, well, it's okay. You know, your son was mean to you or, you know, your your daughter-in-law was mean to you or so-and-so was mean to you. And uh, that's what I think she's after, you know, or even just people like her. You know, there's always somebody who's going to be there to say, oh, you know, even if it's a momentary acquaintance who takes your side, that's what someone's there to prop up the crazy like a folding circus tent. Right. And there's no shortage of those people, I assure you. Oh, Oh, man, that's rough. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Unfortunately, once it goes on this long, you just kind of it was that uh, I'm not a religious person, but the serenity prayer, (laughs) not the things you can't change. So that that's sort of my my thought that um, you can remind people and and these kinds of conversations you know just just having this call you know millions of people can listen to this over time and painting the portrait of what life is like after conception you know is is important um, we are we are bringing the incentive structure closer to to people who might otherwise not make better decisions so I think having this conversation helps a lot. Um, but yeah, the long-term solution is, you know, when the government runs out of its monopoly money, then at some point, uh, the welfare state is going to collapse. It always does. And, um, it's going to be painful for the people who've become addicted to the state currency. It's going to be very painful, but it's going to be for the best. You know, it's it's so much going to be for the best. You know, one of the reasons why your mom can be horrible is because, um, she doesn't have to earn her money. Right. So so if if someone is is horrible in the free market, they get fired. Right. (laughs) Nobody wants to work with them. So they get negative feedback on being horrible. And then they learn they have to learn how to control their temper, how to work with others, how to be nice and and all this kind of stuff. Right. It's it's tough and it's grueling, but it's they come out so much better as human beings. But this thing where people can just kind of. Live. This void, it's either, you know, alimony or child support or welfare state or, you know, whatever kind of crap is going on. Um, It's really, really tough because they don't have to become better people to keep getting the money. And it's one of the things that has really, really enrages me about uh, all of this kind of stuff. The family loses control of dysfunctional family members uh, when the, the government steps in. And starts um, giving them all the money. Then the government takes over. But the government doesn't have any interest in making these people better people. In fact, the government has kind of an interest in uh, keeping them dependent on the state. And so the opportunity that families have to make um, improvements in wayward or dysfunctional members of the family, um, that vanishes. And uh, it is a a brutal thing. You lose control of of any... um, authority or effect you might have over dysfunctional family members when the state starts paying them or they get money from the family courts or whatever. And uh, that is um, that is a really, really difficult thing. And, and there's no way to solve it. I mean, other than, again, when the government runs out of money, then um, the influence over wayward family members will pass back to the family. But 
that's um, one of the great, great problems. You have limited capacity to influence people when they're not dependent on you in any way. Oh, I agree. It's, you know, it's um, the effect of cutting somebody off, you know, is, is gone. Yeah. Oh, oh, fine. You can cut me off. I'll just go down to the welfare office. Right. And and then the only thing you're left with is, you know, ostracism uh, at a personal level because the government has removed influence from a financial level. And um, that's pretty, pretty nuclear for a lot of people. So. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for the call. I, I hope that it was helpful and I appreciate the topic. It is very, very important. And, you know, if you have people around you who aren't making particularly good decisions, yeah, try and help them. Try and you know, try and get them to make better decisions. Because by the time life's messes accumulate, it's often too late to turn them around uh, for these kinds of people. So thanks for your call, man. I appreciate that. And let's move on to the next caller. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Up next, we have Doomguard. Doomguard wrote in and said, "Do you think that there are dangers in taking an apologetic or conciliatory stance?" towards organized religion and faith-based religious attitudes. Do you think that faith and reason can coexist peacefully if faith becomes the dominant entity in the dichotomy? What qualities do you see manifested in an individual governed by faith as opposed to those found in a person governed by reason? That is from Doomguard. Quite the name. Quite the name. Oh, yeah. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add to the question before we dig in? Hmm. Maybe not immediately. You can tell me what you think. I know it's a little too wordy, but oh, that's uh, that's not a problem. Um, no, I don't think there are dangers in having a conciliatory stance towards organized religion. Um, do I think faith and reason can coexist peacefully if faith becomes a dominant entity in the dichotomy? You know, I don't know what that really means because it's very abstract, but the answer to that lies in the question, right? If if one aspect becomes dominant, then it's not coexisting peacefully, right? If if like, you know, it's like, can I coexist peacefully with my wife if I'm constantly um, ordering her around and telling her what to do? It's like, well, no, that's not coexisting peacefully, right? What are your, um, <coughs> what what are the dangers that you see with a conciliatory stance towards organized religion? Well, as far as whether or not one's dominant over the other, I mean, I think we do kind of live in a society where faith is more and more becoming it's kind of a dominant ideological force. Uh, force uh, reasons kind of being confined to a smaller and smaller territory in society. You know, I mean, we don't even really have the ability to speak freely anymore in a country that was, you know, was founded. You know, our First Amendment is freedom of speech. So, and do you why think that's I asked the religion? question? I don't know. Um, maybe because of religious thinking. Maybe because of faith-based thinking. Because of religion wait, wait, do you, itself. Do you see the? Do you see the? Um, hang on. Do you see the um, hostility towards free speech coming from Christians? Well, maybe not in the sense that we're accustomed to. Um, um, no, no, come but, on, dude. Don't, 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 no, no, don't start redefining things. That's a yes, no question. 
Christians are a very specific entity. Do you see the modern pushback against freedom of speech? Do you see Christians rioting? Do you see Christians setting fire to things? Do you see Christians hitting people with bats and sharpened axe handles and flagpoles? Do you see Christians uh, throwing fireworks at buildings? Do you see Christians beating people up because people are saying stuff the Christians don't like? No, not at the moment. But Okay, so that's uh, a no to that question. No, that's a no. I asked you, I didn't say historically, right? If we're going to have a conversation, let's be blunt and clear with each other, right? Uh So it is not Christians who are doing these things. It is not Christians who are suing people for not wanting to bake cakes for people they have questionable um, approval of um, morally or ideologically. Uh, It it is not Christians who are starting riots. It is not Christians um, who are suing atheists to have atheist paraphernalia removed from everywhere they can lay their hands on uh so it seems to me at the moment and i think it's more than seems nay not seems tis i've been watching hamlet but um uh, it is the um the christians who are suffering from restrictions upon freedom of association and freedom of speech uh, and a lot of it is coming from not atheists in general but a lot of people um, who have far less faith in the Christian God than the Christians do, and who are characterized by things other than atheism, but atheism is associated with it, like extreme leftism. Okay. Well, Christians are one group of religious people. They're one faith-based religion. But uh, I don't know. I'll be honest. The reason why I bring it up is because I listened to your conversations with Duke Pesta or with Vox Day. And part of it's kind of alarming because I have experience, a lot of experience with religious people, with Christians, definitely. I live in the Midwest. And, I mean, rioting is one thing, you know. Uh, Outward violence is one thing. But, I mean, there are other factors in the stability of a society. You know, I think really the most important factor right now is their ability to meet reality and pursue virtue and um i'm sorry sorry, but i'm trying to figure out what you're saying but i'm not following what you're saying so if you could you know feel free to dumb it down for me a little more well i mean i just notice just i I don't know what so what are you talking are you saying that people don't want to associate with you because you're not christian yeah that but also so what i just noticed they're not is is that not freedom of association why why should they associate (laughs) with you if you're if you're hostile to christianity i mean why would you? Why would they want to associate with you if you're hostile to Christianity? What, I mean, what would what would be the incentive for them? Well, their association with me. I mean, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Okay, Whether they okay. Associate so that's not a problem at all. Not. So what is? So hang on. But I so mean, if them uh, not associating, hang on. If them not associating with you is not a problem, what is the problem? <laughs> well, uh, I live here. You know, if society does well or does poorly, it does kind of affect me. Um, oh, society is doing poorly. See. Sorry, society is doing poorly because of Christians. I don't know. Uh, I'm not trying I to be confrontational be. here. I'm, I'm genuinely trying to understand. I'm actually trying to be confrontational, but whatever. Stephane. No, I'm not. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. I, well, I can't. I see it I can't all around what me. we're talking about. I see it all the time. I see a lot of people that are having a hard time in life, and they can't seem to get back on track. And a lot of them are Christian, unfortunately. A lot of them do hold those beliefs, and they think that that's sufficient. And I don't really see that working out. Also, quite frankly, because I, I, I've met I don't a lot understand of people, what you just said. I, I don't understand frankly, what you I've just said. I've met a lot of people. I've okay, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till people. you finish, and then I'll ask my question. Sorry, go ahead. 
I have met a lot of Christian people. I've known a lot of Christian people who are anti-Enlightenment, anti-Renaissance. They think that the Renaissance was a mistake. They think that the American Revolution was a mistake, in particular Catholics and Orthodox people. But uh, there's an uncomfortable amount of them around, actually, a lot more than you might think. And I don't know. Uh, I've heard some of your experiences with with religion and the church. I can understand where you're coming from, but uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what the environment is like where you're from. I'm not sure what kind of people you have to deal with on a daily basis, but I mean, I live around them all the time. And uh, from what I've seen, Christianity is not really exactly opposed to some of these forces, some of these ideological forces on the left that you've been preaching against lately. So Christianity, uh, so you think that the left uh, has no particular problems with Christianity and Christianity has no particular problems with the left? Well, they have problems with each other. But uh, this idea of egalitarianism didn't really originate with leftism or communism. I mean, you know that, right? What do you mean? I mean, the idea that there can be something that makes people equal or that makes people deserve the same treatment in society. That's not something that started with communism. But what you're saying is so incomprehensible. So <coughs> have the same, be treated the same in society. Do you mean equality under the law or do you mean equality of outcome? I don't know. Equality of opportunity or equality of results. Egalitarianism generally means equality of results, whereas equality under the law uh, is a freedom to pursue happiness and so on. That tends to be smaller government, fewer uh, interferences from the state. So I'm not sure what you mean. Okay. So you don't think that this is a problem at all then? You don't think that… What are you talking you about? No, I'm asking you to clarify that. your position. I don't even know what your position is yet. How do I know if it's a problem or not? I just asked you to clarify your position on what you mean by egalitarianism. Well, there's a certain attitude in Christianity that people can be spiritually equal in acceptance of their religion or their faith. And this idea that there can be something that equalizes people in a spiritual sense, I think, has led to these more modern ideas of equalizing people materially or in their social standing or in their class or whatever. And what do you mean by spiritually equal? I don't know what well, that obviously. Means. Sorry, it's obvious, but I don't understand it. What do you mean? It's so obvious that I'd be an idiot to not understand it or I'm being willfully <laughs> obtuse. I'm not sure what you mean. So I, I just I don't know here? what you mean by spiritually equal. Does that mean everyone has the chance to get into heaven? Does that mean there's no free will but everyone's soul goes? I mean, I don't know what spiritually equal means, if you can just help me to understand. Yeah, that is what I mean. Everyone gets to go to heaven regardless of their exploits in life, regardless of who what? they are or what they've done. Wait a minute. Everyone gets to go to heaven regardless of how they act on earth? 
Well, yeah. I've I mean, never, ever, ever met a Christian. Oh, I guess there are a few really extreme sects, but I've never met a Christian who says it has no, it doesn't matter at all what you do on earth. You don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. You can be an axe murderer. Uh, you can be a rapist and you get to go to heaven just as much as Jesus did. I've never met a Christian uh, who holds that particular belief. And that seems so to me wait, the complete so wait, opposite so wait, of Christianity. So wait, forgiveness, forgiveness is not a Christian idea? Because it you says, have to earn forgiveness. You have to earn forgiveness. Well, the only thing you have to do to earn that is recite certain words. Nope. I mean... No, no, no that's not how Christianity works at all. Um, no, Christianity works when there's genuine repentance. Uh, and that is a spiritual journey that you go through either with God or with a priest or something like that. Uh, it's not just a matter of reciting particular words and, well, who and, judges and for a lot of hang on sex still not done for a lot of christians for a lot of christians there are two kinds of sins right this is particularly true of catholicism right there are what are called uh, venal sins which are sins that you can recover from and be given absolution for and then there are mortal sins and if you commit those no priest on earth has the power to prevent you from going to hell okay and who decides if you've actually repented in your heart or not i mean what basis well, I do you have about that did you that? not hear what i said yeah mortal and venal sins okay no no before that i said um i don't know if you remember i said that the um the process of uh, genuine forgiveness is a spiritual journey you would go through i guess either alone or with a priest guiding you along and i assume that the priest is pretty good at knowing and we genuinely know we generally know when when we are receiving a genuine apology as opposed to some manipulation, like, I'm sorry, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So uh, God would certainly know whether or not your contrition uh, is, is genuine or not. And um, a priest, I would assume, would, would know. I mean, certainly therapists can, can know when you're being honest with them or not. So I don't think you really understand that aspect of Christianity, which seems to me the kind of core of Christianity, you know, that, that you follow the rules and you get to heaven or you go to hell or, or limbo for some of the denominations. But the idea that everyone just goes to heaven. Now, I do know, and I can't remember which sect it is, but there's some sect where like the number of people who are going to heaven is already preordained. And, and it's like, I don't know much about that. But uh, as far as the Christianity that I was raised in and the Christians that I've talked to over the years, um, your dedication to spiritual virtue is what gets you the ticket to ride up or the escalator down. Okay. To spiritual virtue. So what's that mean? I'm sorry? So what's spiritual virtue then? Uh, did I use the phrase spiritual virtue? Yeah. You said their dedication to spiritual virtue. How's that different from normal virtue, by the way? Um, do you not know uh, the Ten Commandments? Do you not know uh, do what Jesus did? Do you not know the ideals behind a lot of the Christian thinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. I've then you know what you know what spiritual virtue is, right? It, it's virtue related to your your soul. It's virtue related to your afterlife. It's virtue related to the commandments of Jesus, who defines Christianity uh, along with some aspects of the Old Testament. So, so good. You you know that. So we don't need to stop and define it. Okay. And do you think that this idea of virtue is healthy for society? 
Because I've heard you argue with someone before on your show who said that he was a psychedelic drug user and he was arguing that he's visiting other worlds. And of course you shut that down saying that that's not part of our shared reality. So therefore somebody's drifting off in these other worlds and they think they're seeing something or they think that, uh, that they can relate to this other world in ways that they can't relate to our world. I'm just wondering, does that bear any resemblance to heaven? If people can preach these certain values that are supposed to get you into another world that none of us can see and that none of us share with each other on a daily basis, does that have any effect on how we deal with objective daily realities? Does that have any effect on how we can deal with society's problems. Are, are you asking me, does the concept of heaven change what people do in the world? Yeah, definitely. That's of course, of course it does. Yeah. yeah, of course it does. They want to get into heaven, so they'll pursue particular actions. Um, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't uh, in order to, um, to get into heaven. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the big carrot. So yes, it definitely has an effect on what people do in the world. Okay. Is now, you're asking, system. is that healthy? Is that healthy? My question is then, compared to what? Compared mm -hmm. to what, right? So is the concept of heaven healthy if it means that you're not going to get your kid a blood, a blood transfusion to save his life? No, it's absolutely not healthy in that context. And I think that there, most people would agree with me, even if they're on the religious uh, side. So yes, absolutely not. Um, if if the concept of, of religion gives you the idea that this world is so sinful that it's better if you set fire to your house with your family in it so they can sin no more, yes, extremely uh, unhealthy uh, and, and dangerous and destructive. If um, it has you respect property rights because Jesus said thou shalt not steal uh, and therefore you oppose massive taxation in the welfare state, uh, yeah, that's actually quite healthy in some ways in terms of society um, <coughs> doing better. If the absence of religious faith leads you to become a communist or, or some sort of fascist uh, uh, on the left, or which seems to be kind of the same thing these days, or if it leads you to want to use the state to solve social problems, then a belief in the fantasy of the state is far more dangerous than a belief in the fantasy of heaven. Uh, and this has been my journey, as you know, for the past few years, is finding that um, what I thought was an enclave of rationality, which was the atheist community, uh, turned out to be a far more dangerous religion in many ways and for many people than anything the Christians have come up with since Pius II. So um, compared to what is the question? Yeah, is, is the, you know, in, ideally, would it be great if people believed in neither heaven nor the state? Sure, philosophically, those two systems are not sustainable, not valid arguments. However, if I have to choose between people who believe in the state as a solution for social problems and people who believe in fidelity to theology, as a solution for social problems, well, I cannot participate in the second, but I'm forced to participate in the first. And so uh, I throw my lot <laughs> in with uh, heaven rather than the state if I have to choose between the two methods of organizing society.
Wait, so you think religions are apolitical entities then? I'm sorry? Do you think that religions are apolitical, that they don't seek any political agendas? What did you hear me say? I'm always kind of curious about this because you just seem to be leaping in with things that I well, didn't say. Well, you said you'd rather side with people who believe in heaven than those who believe in the state. But, you know, people right. who believe in heaven are still involved in the state. No, and I, they will I still seek that. to influence the state. I understand that. I understand that. But the people who believe in the state as the solution to social programs are completely political. Sure. So 100% versus some less than 100% chance, you know, so if I say, okay, let, let's say the Christians are 25% political, but statheists or status atheists are 100% political, and I say, well, I'd rather have 75% less force with Christians than 75% more force with atheists. You say, what does that mean that 25% equals zero? It's like, that's not what I said. Right. So either you're having trouble processing what I'm saying. I think what I'm saying is pretty clear or you're just kind of being obstructionist because maybe that's your nature. But it's not that hard. It's not that hard to follow logically. <laughs> oh, man, you have no idea. Well, oh, I have some I, idea. We've been try. talking for a little while here. Yeah. OK. Now, if you so, look at a system uh, like. um uh, Buddhism, uh, it seems to be relatively non-political. If you look at a system like uh, Islam, uh, which is a complete socio-political system, uh, well, that's very the, uh, a statist, right? Because the, the religion manifests itself in particular laws run by the government. So it really does depend on the religion. Modern Christianity uh, is a relatively, relatively benign uh, with regards to its pursuit of state power uh, compared to a lot of um, uh, people on the left who, who are atheists, who are going to uh, state power for just about everything. Uh-huh. Okay. Vox Day talked about uh, the necessity of having devout leaders. Do you believe in that as well? Do you think that we would have gotten the same quality of leadership and the same results from Ted Cruz as we're currently getting from Donald Trump? I don't even know what these questions mean. Well, he admitted that he doesn't think that Donald Trump is particularly religious. He's just kind of a common sense sort of guy. But he still thinks that religious leaders would... Well, no, listen, if you've got questions about what Fox Day thinks, then you should talk about it with Fox Day. I can't, I can't speak for him. Well, okay, but I mean, if you guys are having a conversation and you're generally... We're still not out... the same people. Look, he's not in the room with me. We're not co-joined at the brain, right? I mean, doesn't mean that we agree on everything, and he'd be uh -huh. the first to admit that too. So if you've got questions for Fox Day, don't... Don't ask me to speak. As far as Ted Cruz goes, I mean, I mean, Ted, I did the whole truth about Ted Cruz, which you can look at, as well as the truth about the Ted Cruz sex scandal, which you can look at. I think my views on Ted Cruz are pretty clear. Right. So then leaders who appeal to people's faith in order to gain influence in politics, do you not see any problem with that? I'm not going to continue this conversation because you're ridiculous. Uh, when it comes to having these conversations, uh, it, it's it's almost offensive, well, but hey, it's too look, ridiculous man. to be offensive. I mean, do you have any problem with people who lie to people and want political power? It's like, oh, come on. I mean, just don't, I'm not going to have this conversation where you create these ridiculous extremes that answer themselves. And then uh, you pretend to engaging me in some sort of uh, arena of ideas. You know, do you support axe murderers by evil clowns? You know? <laughs> come on. I mean, this is not a conversation that's productive for me or for the audience. There's no subtlety. There's no curiosity. There's no um, you, you're you're a troll.
in this particular conversation, maybe elsewhere in your life, which might have something to do with the kind of religious people who you surround yourself with or who are around you. It may not be the problem with Christianity. It actually may be something in your personality that is causing people to respond to you in a negative way. But if you want to externalize it to Christianity, um, that certainly could work for you, although I don't think it'll work for the long run. But thanks for an entertaining and interesting call. Let's move on to the next caller. All right. I think every single one of his words was wearing a fedora. Up next, we have Jeff. It wasn't just me, right? I, oh, God, no. What was he talking about? And the nice thing, too, is he actually seemed to be offended when I asked him for clarification. That's always nice. <laughs> That's always pleasure. Word salad. What does that mean? <sighs> well. All right, go on. All right, up next, we have Jeff. Jeff wrote in and said, As an atheist who maintains Christian values, how and when should I tell my new Christian girlfriend about my lack of faith? I met her online after indicating a religious status of Christian. Is it possible for an atheist man who maintains Christian values to be happily married and have children with a Christian woman? If so, is it wise? That's from Jeff. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm well. It's a tough act to follow. Please don't follow it. <laughs> um, I'll try not to. Okay, I was a bit of a douche. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it, it is possible. In fact, I will relate a story of a girl... A woman that I knew years ago, um, she was interested in dating me. She was a Christian. I was an atheist. And um, I asked how this would work. And she said, well, it, it would work with us the way that it would work in my family, which is my father's an atheist. My mother's religion, uh, religious. Uh, he sleeps in on Sunday and she takes us to church. Right. Let me ask you this question. <laughs> on a dating profile, if you are pinged by a woman. And the only thing you know about the woman is either that she's an atheist or a Christian. Who do you think you'd have a better chance of a successful relationship with? Um, I've given this a lot of thought, um, and I think it would be a Christian. And that's why, you know, ultimately I did indicate that I was a Christian on the dating profile, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, and I, um, I, uh, I have to tell you, I... I think I agree. It's a I weird. I mean, this show takes me. One of the reasons I love continuing to do this show, my friend, is that it takes me in some very surprising directions. And to that lady in the past, should you ever hear and you know who you are, I'm very happily married, but I'm sorry that I didn't see this uh, 25 years ago. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, so why? Why would you say that? Why? Why are you? Uh, why are you cock blocking the Christian girls? I mean, the the <laughs> atheist girls. Why? Why? What's what's wrong with them? Right. So, I mean, for about, um, I don't know, three years or so, I was doing some online dating and, you know, I, 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 I went on quite a few of them. Um, quite frankly, I went on quite a few and I, I always wait, you went like, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Do you mean you went on quite a few dating sites or quite a few dates? Yes, both. <laughs> okay. No. So, so, and because I don't know much about online dating, what's, uh, what happened? Well, oftentimes, uh, you know, I'd meet with them uh, one date and uh, I'd quickly determine uh, something about them that I didn't like um, and uh, that I probably couldn't couldn't uh, live with. And so I just, uh, you know, I'd never again, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, ghost them, as they say in the online dating community. Um wouldn't necessarily ghost them if they tried to contact me, but oftentimes, uh, ghost know, them. What does that mean? You, you uh, block any notifications from them? Well, ghosting is sort of just like disappearing online. Um, so to speak, it's just sort of like, 
uh, not responding to text messages, not, not, you know, responding to any sort of online messages. And it's quite common in the online dating world, I think these days. So, right. So you wouldn't, so you would contact them if they contacted you, but you wouldn't contact them. Right. If they, if they tried to contact me, I'd certainly, um, not uh, ignore them by any means. Right, right. I also wouldn't go out of my way to contact them again after that initial first date. In You'd I'd give have... them those pleasantly neutral responses that are designed yeah. to indicate very clearly to everybody who's not a psychopath that it's not going any further. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that, that happened quite a bit. And, and usually um, I was able to suss out pretty quickly in the first date that this is not a person who shares my values. This is not a person who... Um, you know, I would, uh, you know, maybe a person I might enjoy spending a little bit more time with, but not necessarily a person I would, you know, conceive spending the rest of my life with. So I kind of, um, you know, I, I, I went on probably 20, 25 of these dates in the, in the last few years. And I only had like, um, one, no, sorry, two second dates out of all of that. Um, and, uh, and one third date out of all of it, um, up until recently. Wow. Up until recently, so. so that's uh that's pretty slim pickings, or is it because they're not very slim? But but what was the uh, what were the major turnoffs for you? Um, like I said, it was mostly it was mostly the uh, the values issue, um, and and so um, what happened essentially was because I wasn't indicating my status as a Christian. Usually, I would indicate uh, you know no religious or spiritual, but not religious or. Or sometimes I would even put atheist as, as my religion. You know, you, you kind of tinker around with um, throughout the years. And um, and uh, yeah, basically in so doing, I, I, I sussed out that um, I wasn't getting the right responses or the right people to respond because partly because people filter by religious status, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. And um, when you would put yourself forward as an atheist, what kind of women were you getting? Um, Typical women. I don't know. Um, uh, uh, You know, generally, generally fairly intelligent women, um, fairly attractive, but also women who had a lot of baggage. It's difficult to really generalize. Um, it's difficult to generalize. Wait, but, but by baggage, you mean like bad relationships, STDs, kids? I mean, uh, what are we talking? Drug drug problems, debt, or or all of the above? Um, maybe too 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 much time spent in university. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe uh, too much um, uh, too much. Uh, yeah, just. Um, I, I say I live in leftist loony land, um, too much leftist looniness, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, and that, that means uh, welcome to family court. Um, did you find atheism and feminism at all went hand in hand? I got the sense that, I mean, I, I've, I've always gotten the sense that um, you're you're typically dealing with um, maybe not women who are self-claimed feminists, but... Um, they certainly are indoctrinated with a certain degree of fem- feminism just by virtue of the you know society that we live in, if that makes sense. Yeah, listen, if you get a Christian woman, you're not likely getting a feminist. And that, that doesn't mean that you're not getting a, a great woman. It just means that you're not getting that lefty feminist 
looking for offense patriarchy crap, right? Yeah, ho- hopefully. Um, the I may have found the exception to the the, the rule in this in this um, this most recent girl that I met because she's uh, she's she's a fairly devout Christian. It's just she's. Um, you know, I live in left, leftist loony land, as I like to call it, and she herself is is she probably consider herself on the left. You know, she probably consider. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you can you can work on each other, right? I mean, you don't have to. You know, people don't have to be the same when you meet them as after you've known them for a while, right? Right. I mean, it's not like everyone who starts listening to this show, at least I bloody well hope not, everyone who starts listening to this show ends up exactly the same after years of listening to this show. I mean, they, you know, the stories we get every day is that, you know, really um, changes people's lives. So you can just be great enough to change your mind about things, uh, you know, make good enough arguments, be engaging and, and all that, and, uh, you know, do it right after she had an orgasm. And, you know, it's going to be great. <laughs> Oh, it's funny you mentioned that. Because not, not not available to this show, said <laughs> or happily perhaps, but go on. Uh, well, it's just funny that you mentioned that because, like I said, she is a good Christian girl, and I'm a formerly good Christian guy. Um, I became an atheist when I was about 22, but uh, you know, technically, I you know use the word technically. Technically, we're both virgins, so um, it would it would be a scenario where there wouldn't be much much organ. Are you born again virgins or what? Born again virgins, <laughs> you know, like some play. If you don't have sex for seven years, you're a born again no. virgin. No, I. Um, well, for her, she, she. This is actually. Um, no, you know what? Don't don't talk about her history this way because that's you know she's not here or whatever. But sure. um, for for you, what does technical mean? So for me, I had I have have had two um, serious relationships, and then the the second one um, that meant doing everything but intercourse. If that makes sense. But see, that's really good for you guys. Statistically, that's fantastic. Statistically, because statistically, like, yeah. it means if you get married and she's a virgin, it means that you're much, much more likely to stay together and have a productive marriage without divorce. No, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm... Uh, and this is, this is not my opinion. These are the facts. I mean, the truth about sex, we go through all of this. Uh, more sexual partners is more much more likelihood of divorce, and it's dose dependent. Like more carousel, more getting thrown off the carousel into the yapping feral pits of the family court system. Right. No, I mean I'm a big fan of that video of of yours, and I've watched it several times. I've shown it to a lot of different people, and I'm waiting. I'm, oh, thank you. I'm waiting to show it to um to to this girl at some point. Not mm-hmm. that she really needs to hear it, but you know, just to give her some you know rational reasons why I as a as an atheist would hold the value of, you know, being abstinent until, until marriage. So, right. So, um, I, I would say this, the shared values matter. The source of the shared values is not nearly as important. And this is a big question that Christians have been debating for hundreds, if not thousands of years, which is, are you a Christian because of what you do, or is it faith alone that makes you a Christian? In other words, if you have faith but don't act as a Christian, are you a Christian? If you have the actions of a Christian but you have a lack of faith, are you a Christian? It's called faith versus works, and you can there's like massive amounts of, of literature about it if you're curious about it. Philosophy makes this a whole lot easier, uh, which is um, it, it, it is the actions that that matter. You can't claim that you're rational if you think rationally but act irrationally. You're not rational because part of rationality is empiricism, and the empiricism of your actions defines who you are. You shall judge them by the fruits of their labors, right, uh, as as it would say in the Bible. So, so if you both hold 
Christian values, you have a compatibility that is not particularly dependent upon the source of those values. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Um, to me, that's been my position um, when I've had these conversations with other Christians. Most of my family is Christian. The, the issue- but let me argue, sorry to interrupt, but let me argue her side just so people, I don't want to lose the dichotomy that, that we have to work with. Sure. So this is it from her side, mm. I would guess. I don't know what denomination she is, but it might go something like this. Well, it's all great. that it's, it's well and good, and I'm happy that you're practicing Christian values, but without faith in God, you're not going to heaven, and I want to be with you forever. Hmm. It's not enough to do the works. You, you, you have to believe. You have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh, I can just wait for people to meme that. But um, you, you, have to, um, you have to actually have the faith. You have to accept the values for the right reasons. And without accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will not get to heaven. Doing the good works is not going to be enough. You have to have the faith. And I want a man I can spend not just this mortal life with, but eternity with. And I don't want to think of you going to hell. So sorry, you're going to have to accept the big stuff. That's one possibility. I don't know where she sits, but that's that's the challenge that that may occur. Yeah, that that may be the the situation with her based on our conversation about it. Um, but I, I think she's somewhat unsure about that at, at this point. So. Um, so all you have to do is be a great enough person to change her mind about that. You know, yeah. people are clay. I'm clay. I mean, God, when I think of that, and I won't go into a big thing, but when I think of the difference from when I was younger to, to now, I mean, just look at the difference over the course of this last two years. I've gone from, you know, ripping on Christians to detente to like praising Christians. I mean, I know. Just be great enough to change people's minds. Be compelling enough. Be interesting enough. Have great enough arguments. Let the evidence accumulate. Don't be passive. This is my whole show for the night, I guess. But but this don't be passive. People are clay. You can mold them. You can be molded by them. We interact with each other. We are a system together, particularly when you're married. Now, if she's got values derived from Christianity that you strongly disagree with. Like if she's like, you know, says spare the rod, spoil the child. So I'm going to have to hit, hit the kids with, with, a, with a rod. It's like, no, no, that's, you know, Jesus said what you do to the littlest of the children, you do also unto me and you shouldn't, you wouldn't hit Jesus. Right. But um, if, if you have a, if you're in the same place, but came from different directions, you can still live together. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, she, she's not um, pro spanking, which I, I really like about her too. But um what I was going to say about that was that um, she. Um, all I was going to say about that is I, I'm, I'm working on that already, so I think I'm already making good arguments with her. Uh, I think I'm already kind of showing her that um, I, I'm kind of worth it and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. You won't be. Listen, if you want to have a good marriage or a great marriage, you will. You will be constantly changing. When I was a little kid, this is back in England, I had a hamster. Ah, brownie. I had a hamster. And there was a French couple who lived upstairs. They were old and when I was young. I meant that they'd been in France during the war. I brought my hamster up to show them. The woman screamed and they slammed the door in my face, even though I had a good relationship with them. I didn't understand it at the time, but of course, being in France during the war, I can't imagine what horrible things they must have seen. People being eaten by mice or being trapped by, I don't know, right? But the point is, (laughs) the point of that story is, the man, this old French guy, once sat me down 
I don't remember how it came up, but the, you know, this is the little things. You, you drop these things in people's ears. I, I never know which sentence is going to rocket people to a different life. But the old man sat down and he said, you know, I have been married for a long time. And this is what I tell you. If you do not get married, you may date 10 people in your life. But if you get married, you will date thousands. And I sort of asked him what he meant. It's like, because your partner and you will change every day. That is very true. I remember that. And that to me is one of the most compelling arguments for. You actually get more variety in marriage than you do dating. And I don't care if you're Hugh Hefner or that creepy British guy who just came forward saying he slept with 2,000 women. Good job, British ladies. But um, there's far more variety in marriage than there is in dating. Because in dating, you go so deep, the relationship breaks up, you go so deep. But in marriage, you go all the way. And you're affecting each other. You're influenced by life, circumstances, environments, ideas. You're constantly influencing each other. You get to date a lot more people and have a lot more variety in your life if you get monogamously married than if you date all the people in the known universe. Um, so don't assume that you have to be 100% compatible before you get married. If you have the same methodology, the same conversations, the same approach to values, um, it doesn't matter because even if you're compatible, when you're perfectly compatible, 100%, not that that's even possible, it's 100%, you're going to drift over time. So you have to have a methodology that's going to keep you together. You don't have to be photocopies to get married because everything's going to change as you go forward anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad, I'm really glad you, you say that. I, I, though, the, the, the thing I struggle with is the sort of saying that, you know, you can't change people. People change themselves and, uh. Yeah, but you can influence, right? Oh, right. and by the way, I didn't do a bad French accent. He had a bad French accent, that old guy. <laughs> I imitated him perfectly. Anyway, sorry, go on. But no, you, um, you, you influence people, of course. Why would you want to get married for someone? With someone that, that didn't influence you, that didn't change you, that didn't inspire you, that didn't um, excite you, that didn't stimulate you in, in intellectual ways and physical ways. I mean, of course you want the person to influence you. I mean, what would it mean to love someone and not influence them? What would it mean to respect someone to the point where you want to spend the rest of your life with them but say, but you're not going to influence me in any way. I'm going to be, I am a rock. I am an art. Right? I mean, it would not be sane of course you're gonna you're gonna blend together you know you you pour the food coloring into the water and they are united and of course both affect each other i mean the 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 food coloring in the water gets paler and the water gets darker right i mean the food coloring in the vial is darker and the water is perfectly clear and you put the two together and you get a mix of course they influence each other and and that's how it should be yeah i i i i completely agree i completely agree that's a great advice i think Wow. Well, good. Well, I think I think I may have solved your issue. Um, now that that having been said, I do wonder there is limit to these things, right? I've made the analogy before. Don't 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 buy a boat and try and turn it into a car, right? <laughs> but you know, be be with each other. And if you guys share the values, that's what matters. Because look, she may meet a Christian guy, and you can make this case to her as well. She may meet a Christian guy who genuinely and totally believes in God, but has taken different things out of the Bible than you have. Yeah. So the faith in God is not going to be the solution. Now, she can wait to meet a guy who has the exact same faith in God and has the exact same values, 
But that's a bit of a risk, you know, bird in the hand, two in the bush kind of thing. That's a bit of a risk waiting for that amount of simpatico. So um, you could remind her that if she has problems with your faith, say, well, you know, I could change. I don't know. But the reality is you could have some guy who's got the faith but doesn't have the actions. Would you rather have the actions? Now, maybe you could get both together, but there's really no guarantee of that. That's hoping uh, quite a quite a bit for perfection, right? Uh, you know, unless she has a PhD and looks like uh, Heidi Klum or whatever, right? Um, so I would say that um, it, it's the it's the actions and the values that matter more than the faith. And if she could get the faith without the concordance in values, and that would be much much less satisfying for her. Well, it would be impossible for her if she didn't want. Like if she gets to spare the rod, spoil the child, hit hitting parent, uh, co-parent, then that wouldn't work out at all. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. All right. Well, thanks uh, very much. Let us know how it goes. I will expect a wedding invitation momentarily. And um, because, you know, time for you to get some. But anyway, um, thanks, everyone, so much for calling in, for supporting the show. Always a massive, giant and great gargantuan, Brobnabachnian pleasure to chat with you all. I appreciate uh, all the callers, good, bad and indifferent. And please don't forget to help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Follow me on Twitter. At Stefan Molyneux. And don't forget to help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Ooh, did you see how I just slipped that little sandwich in? And uh, you can use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful night. I will talk to you soon.